You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 32 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we're coming, you, coming to you for a very special event. It's the 26th Annual Conference on Libraries in the Future, hosted by the Long Island Library Resources Council in Carlisle-on-the-Green, Bethpage State Park, Farmingdale, New York. I got it all out there. Yes, it's Farmingdale and Bethpage. Well, it's yeah. kind of weird how it, it, it's considered Farmingdale. And that was a really long intro, i got to tell you, but, I'll, but this is a great place to be. Yes, and we're going to have some really interesting guests today. There's yeah. some guest speakers that are, uh, that are appearing today. A little bit off-the-cuff episode. Yep. So yeah. we're not going to have that script that we usually talk, say we don't use. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say we use the script. Now you let it all I'm out. I'm the there. one that always says it's the I script we never use. Right. We have some great guests today. I yeah. Guess. So we have a whole bunch of people lined up, including people who are just going to pop into, uh, we are in the bridal suite. Yeah. So there are going to be some people that are going to pop in, and we're going to talk about all things libraries. Yeah. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will have our first guest. See you soon. Okay, we're back, and we have some guests at the table. So if we can go around the table, just let me know who you are, where you're from. Okay, I'm Frank McKenna. Frank McKenna, Director of the Senior Public Library. Oh, go ahead. Say it one more time. I'm sorry. I had the levels down. Okay, I'm Frank McKenna, Director of the Seaford Public Library. I'm Mark Navins from Lillerick. Danielle Menard from Longwood Public Library. Great. So good speaker, first speaker, right? Yeah, it was a good start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, just give me one second. So we had uh, Emily Drabinski, who's the coordinator of library instruction at Long Island University uh, Brooklyn campus, and we're going to have her on a little bit later. Um, she had some really interesting things to say about um, one thing that stood out for me was the value of libraries for hospitality. Um, and I know she talked a lot about cataloging and, and some of the other things too, but I think part of what she was trying to get across was how things... When, when you classify things, it's how not only you classify them within the constraints of Dewey or Library of Congress, but how you actually um, put them out for the patrons. Like she was talking briefly about the, the, Wi-Fi, the Wi-Fi hotspots, and how do you actually catalog that? How do you actually get that you know, out so patrons know about it? And I thought that was really interesting. And yeah, yeah I, I thought it was interesting when she was talking about the cataloging, um, you know, just how she was kind of like stretching the way we think about things and how, you know, I'd, I would have never thought about how the way the Library of Congress classification um, classifies things, that that would make libraries in the Philippines make a whole section just based on, um, you know, Filipino writers and um, you know, stuff like that. So it, it's just interesting to, to kind of take a step back and you know, out of our own, you know, who we are, and kind of like looking like how is this? How is the way we doing things affecting other people? And um, I thought it was really, really interesting when, when she was talking about the social issues and stuff. And, and one thing that struck me too at the end was the, the discussion about Google and how um, yes. Google curates their information based upon you know analytics, whereas you know, and and the big argument is, well, I don't need a library anymore. There's Google, mm-hmm. but. The idea that you're actually curating as a librarian as opposed to just retrieving information, I think, was what sets us apart from just running a Google search. 
I think that was important. Did you hear the group in there when they said you're not really searching the web, you're searching what Google yes. has on the web? That was great. Everybody was just like, wow, that's true. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't think about it. You go to Google a million times a day and you think you're getting the results that you want, but really, I mean, you, and you might be, but really you're getting the results that Google has in their cache or in their storage. So mm -hmm. you're not really searching the web, you're searching Google's response of the web, you know, and their, their take on it. Sure. I think a lot of people forget that, that it's not a true, it never could be. You know, unless you had something that was completely... Because you'd have to index the internet every right. single time you do a search. And nobody would do it, you know, in a non-biased way, right? No matter what. People still have their influence, they still have their ideas, and that goes into the algorithm build, and then you get what, you know, whoever built it has that power. It's true. So. I know I'm going to go back to my, uh, to my staff, and we're going to look at that uh, video again of uh, Michael Cuts and uh, how Google... Uh, constructs their uh, search engines. And what it said to me, honestly, and, and tell me if you guys agree or disagree, but maybe libraries should look at incorporating other search engines, not just Google. You know, there used to be there used to be a ton, but now everybody uses Google. There's still a lot of search engines out there. Sure. But most people go right to Google because it's so synonymous with search. Right. That's right. I just you know? was speaking with somebody yeah. uh, right after the talk, and they were talking about uh, DuckGoGo. Right. Yes. yes. The search engine. I didn't really even know about it, so I'm right. going to go back. There's no ads. Yeah. They don't track you. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Libraries probably don't even know about that. And Google's yeah. so in your face, mm -hmm. you know, personally, on your devices, right? Everything defaults to Google now. So you think that if you're not using Google, you're not getting a relevant result. When it may be in the case, especially for libraries, that it's the opposite. It's, it, Google's so powerful now that it, it's called Googling. Like when you, right. when you yeah. search something, it's not even, you know. Not even searching anymore. It's Googling yeah, it's now. Googling. Yeah, exactly. So they, they've really, you know, right. completely through their marketing have cornered yeah search engines you know and good for them but I guess what we talked about at a, a couple of podcasts we did a long time ago was was um, we have the we have the power and the ability to choose right so we don't have to always choose Google we could choose you know other search engines and see how they work out so sure um, and that's mean, what I like that's what I took from what she said the most is that the power really should be and is in many cases in our hands you know mm. but we some somehow submit mostly unwilling to the power that's bigger or more talked about or more popular you know well, I think part of the skills that librarians have, too, is that we go past the first page in a Google search. Yeah. So if we're looking for something, we're not afraid to go 20 pages in to find exactly the right information we're looking for mm -hmm. and finding just the right authority on top of that. Because anybody can, can search Wikipedia and come up with information, but it's not necessarily curated. It's not necessarily accurate. Anybody can go onto Wikipedia and add to it. So, you know, they say, you know, if they make up something about, I don't know, Liam Neeson's having green toenails, you know, it's not necessarily true cause, just because Wikipedia says it. So, you know, I think one of our jobs as librarians is to be able to curate what we're seeing on the screen so we can not only give the patron the answer, but give them the right answer as opposed to what Google's manual mechanical indexing is yeah. doing. And that's not publicized either, that, not. We're do that we're doing that. No, not much at all. That's the trick behind it, yeah. Well, that's, Google gives everyone the illusion that they're expert researchers now right. because, you know, I could search the first page, you know, right. like, um, and that's kind of one of the reasons why librarians are more important than ever because you know, it's like, no, that's just, you know, what some algorithm told you you should see. There's yeah. way more information than that, and there's, you know, other sources, too, so. Right. Um, and there are a lot, yeah, there are a lot of ways around that, too. So, I mean, if you do a search for a dishwasher, 
right? You put in like dishwasher PC Richards, you'll notice the first thing that comes up is dishwasher Home Depot. Mm. Because the guys at Home Depot have written their codes such that the algorithms from Google pick up what they're looking for and they get a top rank. Mm -hmm. So now think about the information sites that are doing that, the news sites that are doing that. How far you have to go in to get the truth, maybe mm. third, fourth, fifth page. You know, right. so it's tricky because you know while they have the power to build the algorithm, other people have it to manipulate it, and it, it turns out to be an interesting uh, search when you hit that button. So again, if there's there's value to librarians in what they do, and in the same breath, there's a certain responsibility with cataloging materials as well, whether it's a book, whether it's an audio book, whether it's a CD, whether it's something that's a non-traditional item like a, a wireless hotspot or maybe it's a laptop, or maybe it's some other piece of realia, these patrons still have to know that it's there. And what's the first point of contact they have before they see a desk? They go to the OPAC and they search for it. And if they search for something and then it comes up as a relevant search, now they know, or they have a question based upon that, what's a wireless hotspot? And then they go to the reference desk. So it's kind of a cycle that goes around. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's a responsibility of ours to, make, to curate that information properly. And we'll talk more with Emily about that later. But, uh, you know, it really is an, an interesting concept. Well, she made you think, and that's, that's the whole idea. If we can give the patron the power to think and question, right, that's, that's really our job now. And apparently, that's our job, is to allow them to question, remind them that they can question. You know, the information that you just got might not be right. And that's what I think she did, you know, Emily did for us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. Well, thanks for coming in, guys. And we're going to take another short break, and we'll come back with some more guests. Thanks a lot. <laughs> okay, we're back. And joining us now is Carl Vitovich, who is the, what, what's your official title over at BOCES? I'm the Administrative Coordinator for Eastern Suffolk BOCES School Library System. Very cool. Great. Nice to have you. Thank yeah. You. So what do you think of the conference so far? I'm enjoying it. Okay. Um, I've been here about uh, for three years, different, attending a different ones, and it's always good to get a feeling of uh, perspective mm -hmm. and diversity. Not only in the library world, but all these other organizations that we deal with. Right. Uh, historical societies, museums, colleges. It's always good. Yeah. Okay. That's great, yeah. yeah. Um, and we've had some really good speakers today. Yes, too. we have. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Emily from uh, LIU, Brooklyn, was very good. Uh, gave us a lot to think about sure. as far as uh, diversity goes. And uh, just cataloging in general. I mean, cataloging is, you know, but putting things in their place. Absolutely. Yeah, um, sure. You know, we all do it, not only in the library world, but right. everywhere else. We all put things into place. And it's just like, okay, well, how are you coming with it? And, you know, how are you putting it into a certain area? Right. That really made us, uh, a lot of people think. And really then, did. Uh, David with uh, the Tenement Museum. Yes, that was very yes, fascinating, yes. yeah. And, you know, genealogy is a big thing. Yeah. And I guess New York has <coughs> an immigrant you know, population. Who knew? Yeah. yeah, right? I just had the images of my dad growing up in yeah. Brooklyn you know, in, in the 40s, living in a, a railroad cat car, uh, a railroad flat. Yeah. So you know, it, it really evoked a lot of that stuff for me. And um, I am into genealogy, and I have some family uh, that I've been researching. And you know, granted, they're not in New York, but they, you know, like, they're like in the row houses. So it's like I'd like to get in. I haven't been there yet. I haven't brought my kids, but that, that is one of our trips to at least give them that experience of like, you know, 
10 people living in a 300 square foot place. Right. Yeah, it's, it's which nice. is unimaginable today. Well, sure. granted, no, within you know, with regards, but you know, for normal everyday, back then it was just something that was that was done. Yeah, absolutely. I was impressed by the. I think Chris, you and I talked about it before. The personal stories. Yes. How they were able to get not just the story of the building or the area, uh, or the time, but the personal stories of who right. lived in these 325 square foot, you know, rooms and how many people and and to actually interview them and then have, you know, um, I guess captions of them playing in the yeah. museum. I thought that was incredible. Because you hear the story of the time, and sometimes you hear the story of the building, and you do hear the stories once in a while of the families, but to have specific interviews with the people, you know, and have have their take on how it was to live like that back then, I think it's incredible. And and the personal stories are what, you know, libraries are about. Right. And, you know, museums are about. It's about the personal story and the experiences that those individuals have that, you know, we can look at and reflect upon. And it really goes towards, uh, like, archiving and, you know, the maintenance, which we'll talk to him about later, hopefully, yeah. if we can get him in here. <clears throat> That'd be great. Uh, how, how they put that all together. Yeah. So tell us about a little bit of, about uh, what you do and okay. what's, what goes on with BOCES and how this fits into what you, you do. All right. Um, we'll break it down. Eastern Suffolk BOCES, uh, BOCES, for those that are out of New York, it's a, a board of education, educational uh, services, cooperative educational services, uh, basically in a region, and there's about 36... 37 across New York State, and they group different areas together, and they provide services, shared services, to the districts of their region. Um, so for Eastern Suffolk, I am basically a little past middle of the island, out to the Forks, plus Fishers Island. Plus Fishers. Plus oh. Fishers. Fishers Island is part of New York State. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and a lot of people forget about it because they're like, they're like the, the period out there. Yeah, yeah. they're and so close to Connecticut and Rhode yes. Island. Um, but they are part, and we do provide services to them, um, along with Fire Island, Shelter Island, and the rest of the area. Uh, we are very diverse, Eastern Suffolk. Um, we have like our largest districts are like Brentwood and Sachem, which are over 10,000 students. And then you go Sachem. out to the Forks, yeah. um, and we have uh, like Wayne Scott and Sagaponic, and those you know Suffolk, and those little districts that have like 100 or 50 or under students, or you know under even 20. So it, it is a wide, diverse area. Um, you know, economics, it's you know from one end to the other end, and you don't think about it until you actually start going out there. I've been, this is my second year out there, so I go out there as an educator visiting those schools, and uh, it is different than going out there as a tourist, because when you go out there, you go out to the, the wineries or the pumpkin farms or you know, do whatever the beach, but when you go out there as an educator, you're actually finding the schools which aren't off the main road. <coughs> And you experience them, and you see what the population is, and you know what their needs are, and you're trying to meet them. Quite a different perspective. It is. Right? It, yeah. Perspective yeah. is everything. Yeah. Um, and then for school library system, I am the administrative coordinator. There's 41 school library systems across New York State. Mm-hmm. Um, again, all the, the different library systems started around the 80s. Yeah. Um, school library deals with the schools. We provide automation, online databases and professional development to the school librarians and you know, the databases and the automation for their, their students and the faculty to use. So um, that, that's my main role is right now is more PD because mm-hmm. that's what's more needed now. Back in the heyday, you know, automation was a big thing. Now it's, everyone has it. Um, online databases, there's always resources that people need. Sure. So I'm supplying them. Um, but PD is a good thing. PD has changed a lot. Professional mm-hmm. development has changed sure. a lot. 
um, trying to get them more involved and you know presenting and sharing their knowledge and that's the biggest thing I think right now is everyone's sharing their knowledge you have the internet you have podcasts you have webinars um, people can attend any time that they want and I think that that needs to be ramped up a lot more and, and part of part of that too is actually having that material available yes. at any time yeah. as opposed to having it you know like like today we're having this, yes. this particular meeting but um, having an element of streaming and recording right. they're actually live recording this now so it can be made available and archived and right. watched at any time and I think that's important because you talk about resources uh, Having this person going from, 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 in our case, in the public library world, from library to library, giving the same talk oh, every yes. time, takes a lot of effort, yes. as opposed to recording it once and having it available for, for watching. Right. Um, that's so true. And, yeah. it, and it's fun. And it is fun. It, it is that, fun. And that's the big thing. It's you fun. You can watch it whenever you want. Right. And you it's know. also fun from the production, at least yeah. maybe fun in the sense that for me, it's fun on the production and to actually make that happen. And, and the tools that we have today are so amazing. I mean, and so inexpensive yes. relative to what they were, were even big, 10 years yeah. ago. <laughs> I have a radio TV background, mm-hmm. and I remember carrying around you know, the big VHS techs and the tapes and the three right. quarter inch. And you know, you need like three or four people to come yeah. out and do yeah. stuff. Now it's like, you know, just let me put my Take out your phone. Can, yeah, put a phone. Or actually, they have, um, I saw one device, I forget what it was called, but it's like a little soup can, it has a camera in it. And you just place it on there, and you can live stream it. That's and then you can incredible. use your phone to like pick your shots and you know zoom in on it. So you can just put it up on the little stand up in the corner and just do it all like that. Wow! If so, we were trying to do this in the eighties, oh, could have been impossible. Would be more wires data, than we have on this desk right now. A data set up, right? Probably yeah. three people to carry all the equipment. Yeah. Right? A bigger room. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's a completely different world now. It is. I mean, even in, in, in terms of this podcast, I mean, I know. The, the relative, in, you know, it was very inexpensive to put the whole thing together technically, you know, with regard to the equipment, yeah. where 10 years ago, this could have been right. a, a $2,000 investment. Yeah. And need I a get, bigger board and everything yeah. else. Yeah. It's so accessible. I, I guess, like what you were saying is, you know, everybody from every kind of device, it doesn't matter if it's an Android or an iOS, or if it's in Japan, we have a big following yeah. apparently yes. in Japan. So, yes, Japan. You know, they, anytime, anywhere, right, on any device, they can just download and listen to things like this. Yeah. And get our perspective and your perspective. Or, or, or video, too. So it's yeah. really, really fun. Uh, we it's weren't made for video. We're no. made, we're yeah, made we're, for yeah, we don't have faces yeah. for video. We're radio radio's fine for us. Yes, yeah. exactly. But radio had its heyday. It's still good. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. still good radio. And, that's, and podcasting is kind of like the child of radio. Yeah. Because it's the same concept. And podcasts are a lot easier to watch and you know, listen to in the car. That's what yeah. the video streaming. You have trouble with the video streaming. Right. Yeah. Well, you, you don't want to look in trouble if you're trying to watch <laughs> it. Nobody yeah. wants to look at Chris and I talking. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, so tell me what BOCES actually does for those people that don't live in New okay. York City. It's vocational training. And it's, it's a multitude of services. Mm-hmm. Um, the main ones that when people think of BOCES is special ed uh, services and then uh, career tech and ed for adult learners. We yeah. uh, learn a skill, whether it's welding, nursing, uh, English, you know, ESL classes. Um, and then for special ed, I mean, there's you know, one-to-one classes, different, you know, ranges of student to uh, person, you know, uh, people, you know, teachers and aides to help them, you know, progress through the school year so that they learn by the time they graduate a skill so that they can be productive in society. Um, and then those are for the students, but then for, and then, you know, they can learn auto tech, 
and you know the, the, the regular vocational skills. You think of any vocation, you can go to a process and learn how to do that. Whether you're in high school or you're coming back as an adult, at, you know, adult, an adult. Um, but what we provide for as um, to the school districts, um, the servicers are all over the place. We do um, professional development for teachers and administrators. There's model schools, which does training for teachers, professional development for teachers, and not so much just how to do it, but how do you incorporate it into your classroom? They right. you know, would go there and say, okay, we're gonna do podcasting, I'm gonna be here to assist you, whether it's that or something else. Um, just in, in my department, um, I'm part of the uh, educational, uh, instructional uh, support services, EISS. Mm -hmm. So we do that. Uh, we have student data services, so all the student management systems that keep track of the kids, um, their attendance, their test scores, their evaluations, um, any in the individual uh, educational plans that they have, IEPs, all that stuff is there, and there's people there that provide support on the various systems that are you know, the districts can subscribe to. They go, you know, like they support. We're just there to support them. I do school library. Um, there's also a group. Uh, Department uh, program for arts and ed, so they'll assist the districts in bringing in um, educator performers, authors, illustrators into the schools, so the kids get that real that real life experience. Um, you know, like there's a went to another event um, where they had the uh, there was a performer, but she performed like. Um, Amelia Earhart, you know, they have actors and actresses sure. performing out, you know, older, uh, you know, uh, historical figures. Right. So they're able to do that. And then the reason why the, that shared services part is because if all the districts combine and then a, they're, they're, sa they're saving their money so they don't have to spend, and also because they go through the BOCES, it comes down to um, they're able to get state aid back. Mm -hmm. Each program has, you know, certain things that are aidable, certain things that are not. And then as they go through the year, that all builds, you know, one big list at the end of the year. They, they take it, we verify it, goes up to the state, and they'll get the aid for next year. So they can use that as part of their budget process also. So it's a good, it's a win-win. We're able to provide the support, and they don't have to go to each vendor. They're able to bring in people that they need. To, you know, to educate the students or provide an additional experience to the students. They get the money back, and we're here to assist them to do whatever. We have that knowledge because, you know, we're talking to everyone all the time, so it's like, if you have a problem with one, I probably already heard someone said it, contact support you, just call us, they'll take care of it and move on. Um, they do enrichment over the summer, mm -hmm. at least our department, um, to keep the kids, you know, involved in, you know, summer enrichment. The year-long enrichment, so it's, you know, because a lot of kids, their parents, both parents are working. One mm -hmm. parent's working, no one's home. They're able to, to continue that, right. at least have some fun, you know, and learn. Yeah, doing something after constructive, school. right? Yes, yeah, after tangible, school, yeah. whether it's robotics or 3D right. printing, or, you know, whatever else that they have planned. Something that doesn't fit into the curriculum either. Right. Yeah. So extra experience, you know, extracurricular experiences are a wonderful thing that, you know, they I was, need. Yeah, I was impressed with the way that you folks can keep up with technology because I, I took a welding class there probably 10 right. years ago only because one day it, it spawned on my buddy and I we wanted to learn how to weld our boat trailers when they right. broke. So we went and took a continuing ed, ed class mm -hmm. and they had not only um, older equipment that worked so you could learn on it but right. they had the newer stuff too. 
and, and so you guys keep up with as yes. time as newer stuff comes out. We were we were doing advanced TIG welding on yeah. some of the newer, um, very expensive machines. So I was impressed at what you folks had to offer. You know, the everyday layman that comes in and tries to learn a, a new skill. But I mean, if, if you want to be marketable for a job, you need that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. You really need that. I, ex I kind of expected like older equipment. Right. I mean, working but older, and it wasn't like that. It was very clean. I mean, everything was was definitely taken care of. Yeah. And even the newer stuff that had just come out, you know, machines that cost thousands yeah. of dollars were there at our at our disposal. That and you know, you had, and it, it's just a great opportunity for. Yeah whether it's to relearn a skill or just to continue on or just pick up something. Or even, you know, there's the continuing ed classes. Some of them have no relation set to anything. Right. You want to learn how to, you know, I'm a fairly decent cook, but, you know, mac and cheese, I'd like to move on from right, mac and right, cheese. Right, Let right, me yeah. just get sure. you know, kick yeah, yeah. it up a little bit. What can yeah. I do? And there's yeah. classes like that, too, you know, there, too. And there's a lot of parallel to, not necessarily the, the teak welding, but cooking classes and things right. like that that we do at libraries, too. So, yes. So we have a lot of things that yeah. are in common. Well, you know, libraries are education. Yeah. Yep. And um, that's a good thing, whether you get it, you know, from the library, from the OCs, or from your school district. It's all, you, it, yeah. We throw it out a lot, but we are lifelong learners, yeah. sure. And we need to be that. I mean, otherwise, we're not going to have another a good life. Yeah. We're not going to be able to evolve as a, as a society either. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So I think we have some other people that want okay, to come cool. and join us. So right. stay, stick with us. Stay with okay, us. Yeah, stay with us. Okay. And want to bring some people in, Chris? Yeah, sure. Oh. We just we have Chris Kretz uh, from the uh, Long Island History Project who's yes. assisting in uh, wrangling guests for Cur us. Curating. He's, He's the curator. curator. He's curator of the library pros. <laughs> curator Kretz instead of him. Curator Kretz. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, so we have both of our about that. both there of the guest go. speakers that were here today. Excellent. So I just sit down here. Yep. Yeah. Jump on in. I'm Chris. Hi, I'm Carl. Okay, just jump on in. Everybody's mic should be nice and live. Right, and just try to get close to the mic too, because it's really loud outside. So we had to kind of. You can grab the grab the mic stands too. That's no biggie. So go ahead, say something so we can hear you. Hi, I'm Emily. Okay, oh, we can hear you. Great. Perfect. <laughs> I've never been on one of these before. Oh, that's okay. It's a new experience to hear your own voice. <laughs> it's strange, right? A little, yeah. It's a little strange. Yeah. yeah. So you guys both did a great job today. Um, Emily, we wanted to talk to you about something you had mentioned with regard to, um, I'm looking at notes that I, I'm not going to actually say I took, um, <laughs> about the um, librarians and the value of hospitality, the whole concept of hospitality. Um, now, we work in, in the public library world, and Carl is from, from, schools. from, from <laughs> schools. And when you said that, kind of a light bulb went off in my head saying, you know, you're right. And we've talked about this in previous episodes where... Um, where we had, I had an experience with the, I'm not going to say the person's grumpy, but the person who was an older gentleman who said, because we were doing, we're doing other things now with 3D printing and mm -hmm. virtual reality and all those other things. And she said, since when did the library become an entertainment center? Hmm. Well, guess what? Fiction books are entertainment, and we've been doing fiction books for a very long time. So, but when, when you said that whole idea about the, value, the hospitality end of what we do, it, it really, really struck me. Can you, can you expand a little bit on that? Sure. I mean, I uh, was introduced to the concept of hospitality in terms of classification systems in my knowledge organization class in library school. Oh, by the way, LIU grad. LIU grad. Great. Go Pioneers. Go Pioneers. <laughs> I'm lucky to be on the Blackbird campus, which is the superior mascot. Uh, yeah, well, you know. Yeah. Um, 
So in, in terms of classification structures, it means something technical about the flexibility of your categories. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, uh, it's really about being accommodating to difference. So if you think about a Thanksgiving dinner you're having and you're inviting your whole family and they're all different and they disagree with each other and, you know, Uncle Kevin can't How did you know believe. my family? No, I was <laughs> just going to say. Were you, were you over my Thanksgiving last year? I don't know. So hospitality is really about making sure yeah. there's a place for everyone at the table. That's right. um, so, yeah, I mean, some people will not want to read a book anymore and want to 3D print something and somebody else will hate people who 3D print and both of those people need to have a space and a place in our libraries, I think. And, and that's what libraries yeah. do well. We make space for just about anybody. Um, the, the big joke is we'll work with anyone. You know, we'll, we'll help anybody who comes in our doors because that's, that's what we do. Yeah, but I think it helps to be conscious of that and to remember that not everyone is the same. That's correct. So yeah, we, sure. we have a patron who... Uh, not to say she's a grumpy patron, but <laughs> and she has very particular needs about and around um, uh, hygiene and sanitary things that have to do with the computer. So she always wants to wipe down all of her equipment. And, you know, so we have to accommodate and make space for her and be hospitable and keep the particular brand she wa of, like, sanitary wipes she likes in the drawer. You know, those sorts uh, of things yeah, that, like, yeah, you, sure. you got a master's degree to do, but yeah. I think that's <laughs> the, the, core, the core of our work, for sure. Bravo. Bravo. you got to replace the keyboards after she rubs the letters <laughs> off, right? It's like, okay. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. But she's, she's a patron just like everyone that's else. That's right, yeah. So you were talking about, uh, I think it was your icebreaker, the circulating hotspots kind of thing, and yeah. I thought that was a really good um, icebreaker. How do you, and I don't know if you handle this over at LIU, um, how do you handle dealing with non-traditional, cataloging non-traditional items like hotspots or like laptops or things like that? You know, I don't know. We don't circulate hotspots, and it actually hadn't occurred to me that that was a, a thing that academic libraries could do. <laughs> and that sounds maybe a bit silly here on Long Island where it sounds like that process is really penetrating. So we don't um, circulate anything... That you you don't have a lot of non-traditional things that you circulate. We really don't. We have we have artist books, but they don't circulate because okay. then they would break. The hotspots came up last night. That was a, yeah, it was a the, last the night. big topic of conversation. Yeah, I ended up at the table with the vendors, which was great. You know, <laughs> they are exceptional at making conversation. Hey, take with my business card. Know anybody. Yeah. How many business cards did you get yeah. last night? I have yeah. a pocket full of business cards right Nine now. Nine from the same yeah. person, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I know um, I had worked at Dowling College at one point. And uh, I worked with Chris Kratz over at Dowling. And um, they have, because it was a teacher's school primarily, they had the teaching kits, which was more than just a book. There was books, workbooks, CDs. They had to kind of package them and, and put them in a particular kind of thing. And it, it always amazes me how catalogers um, can find different ways to catalog an item and take that square peg and put it in a round hole. Yeah, we uh, our post campus circulates those kinds of teaching kits, and I, yeah, the, the but that's about being hospitable. That's about having your classification structure able to incorporate kits and cake pans and hotspots and tools and all the other things that libraries increasingly circulate. And you know, it's it's always been fascinating to me about how you know again square peg round hole, how you you know you go to vendors and you find oh there's the bag we can use and. You know, and then when you talk about, I, I've cataloged briefly. So when you have to put the physical description in, how do you put the physical description in of each item? Is there a different field for each item, and do you have a different field for that big bag that it comes in? And you know, it depends on how 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 detailed you want to get with that with yeah. that record. It's like, wow, how do you how do you wrap your head around that? You know, but it's kind of a it's 
can be difficult, right? Yeah, you know, I'm not a cataloger. I teach people how to use the catalog, so I have a ton of respect for the people who are able to do that intellectual work, and I think it's undervalued um, and underappreciated as we more and more outsource cataloging or do cooperative cataloging that isn't unique to our collections or the people who use our collections. That right, really my, is. My, my turn. Yeah, go ahead. For me, I, I love the Google video that you brought up, mm -hmm. and I, I'd like to, for you to expand on the point that when we search the internet, I think one of the best things that I took from your, from your presentation was when we search the internet, we're searching Google's variation of the internet. And the folks that make that algorithm have all this power to, to see how that turns out and present it to us in ways that make the information look like maybe it fits. But like Chris was saying before, we go to the third and fourth page of the search results and you find more relevant results than you do usually on the front page. And I love the fact that you brought up that video and just expand if you can on, on how, if you're using Google, you're, you're really getting the results that they want you to get back. You really are, yeah. and yeah. you don't know why you're getting them, and I think right. you, why you're getting what you're getting. And I do think like research and knowledge formation is about assembling from what we're able to retrieve. And so in the library, the retrieval system is really easy to understand. Like I teach it, I don't know, all day every day from September 15th to November 5th, right? Like that's what, I, what my day job is. And um, Google, you know, so I can read it and students can read it. But Google, we can't read it for two reasons. One, we're not computer scientists. Like I've read the definition of an algorithm many times and it's like the definition of words like heuristic. I don't understand because um, I'm not a computer scientist. And I also can't read it because it's private. It's a corporate, like that's what they have to sell is that algorithm. And so they have an investment in making sure that none of us know why we're retrieving what we're retrieving. So I like that video, especially because it's presented as a really, like Matt, the guy is really cheerful and he just really wants to show you how it's kind of like a spider. And then there's like a bunch of files. He really and, dumped it down, didn't he? <laughs> you know, and he's trying to make it accessible. And so I appreciate that. But uh, I think it conceals the incredible power Google has now to drive what it kinds of questions it's possible for ask to us to ask and what it's possible to know. I thought it was a great video. And then you watch the crowd, kind of like they, they got one-on-one -on -one with Matt, right? They felt he was comfortable. Yeah, And we then like when, the, when the video was over, they were like, but wait a second. You know, at least that's, that's I think, what your point was. Yeah. They, they that thought about it, and they were like, but, but wait a minute. There's, so. there's power there yeah. that Google conceals um, and that Matt conceals. He's like, a, he's like an alibi for that. Do you have any um, alternative search engines that tend to give you more relevant results or better results? We talked about one before. DuckDuckGo, Duck Duck I believe. Was it? Yeah. 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 You know, I'm a I'm a do as I say, not as I do person. <laughs> <in that. laughs> That's right, I am yeah. completely cloned yeah. inside of the Google universe, and yeah. I don't know how I could get out of it. Yeah. So when I'm when I'm in, you know, it's like. It's like the fake news conversation we're all having these days, that yeah. it, the problem is not so much the content as it is the need to be critical of what it is we're finding and retrieving. The weeding of the content, basically, right, is what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah, what kinds of questions do we ask of the information that we find? How quick did they become synonymous with search, though? And they're so big, so it's tremendous. Now, you don't say search anymore, you say Google. You know, like I've we been noticed in your presentation, Dave, the same thing. Chris and I looked at each other. You say, if you Google it. Yeah. It used to be if you search it. It's become it's a not, verb. There's yeah. no more research. There's no more search. There's just Google. You know, it's a do now. I'll it's ask a, a class, like, where do you start your search, right? And, you know, it's always like a cheerful thing. And the students well, won't just go to say, Google. And they won't say library, but every single time they say Google. And then I'll say, does anyone ever Bing? <laughs> it always gets a laugh. Bing, Bing is what? And, yeah. Uh, Bing's a search engine you change from to go yeah, to Google. Exactly. That's the one where you go, oh, it's in Bing again. Yeah. <laughs> so talk about, if you can, and, and this is a question, I guess, for the table, or a more of a statement. 
Our job is to go through all that information and give patrons, students, relevant results you know, from, their, from what the question was. So I guess talk about how that's quite the experience. You know, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of our job is to help people ask questions and form better questions. So I see that as a huge part of our work. So connecting people to resources also means helping them see and understand what it is that they are asking and sometimes why they can't find information. I had a student um, a couple of years ago, she was uh, assigned in her class to be the con side of a debate about whether or not poverty has impacts on public health. Right, and I was like, "Well, the, the poverty has an impact on public health. Right. Like, we're done, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. you get a you right get an there. F, right? So that, that <laughs> you, yeah. I think part of it is understanding our bias, right? So I believe that, and it influences the ways I can ask questions of the system. And so by w working with her and working through the things that we found, when we just sort of threw search terms in, we realized that if we thought about the problem or question from another perspective of someone who doesn't believe that, what language would they use to talk about the problem? And we hit on personal responsibility. So then we can you can type into the search engine, we were using ProQuest, you can type into the database search, personal responsibility and public health. And we got lots of things that were all about how it's not poverty, it's in fact the poor choices of people living in poverty that produce public health outcomes. And so it's that, that kind of work, helping people negotiate the systems and structures that they have to, that they're forced to ask their questions against, I think is the, the critical work that we have to do these days. It, it's almost as though um, the concept, and this is back when I was in college, that the, the one thing that professors always said is, well, you have to think critically about this. You have to think critically about the information. You have to think critically about the data. Has Google taken critical thinking away to some extent? Well, you don't go past the first page. Oh, look, I found what I need, and this is, this is what it says. And, we see that a lot in public libraries where they go, can you just go to Wikipedia and tell me? And you know, <laughs> Wikipedia. I mean, I think it's made it feel easy it's, and, and seamless to ask and answer questions when that process is not simple at all. Yeah. I think it's, it's given it's, it's an easy way out, but if you go to like a museum, like the Tenement Museum, where you're actually there and experiencing it, then it puts a lot more perspective on you know what you're thinking also right and and trying to like you know you're able to touch it you're able to smell it you're able to you know look around it and makes that personal connection yes. yeah and the way that they set it up yeah i mean i i would um <clears throat> add to piggyback on something from emily's talk oh thank you that's much better yeah <laughs> <laughs> i can hardly i'm constantly could, tweaking over couldn't, here couldn't quite hear um uh, myself there but what i was going to say is that this idea that narratives are constructed, right, that they're not necessarily, uh, that people creating narratives, whether it's at a museum or assembling a kind of picture of reality through a search or through a catalog, right, that those are, people are making choices and decisions about what gets put in that narrative or what puts it, gets put in that picture of reality, right, and so if, you know, students or visitors to a museum or what have you can leave with whatever task they're doing, leave with that, that kind of, um, uh, understanding, right, that that's part of, that's an inherent part of critical thinking, right, that, you know, you're not just going on Wikipedia and that's the, yeah. that, that's the, the final word, that somebody's made choices about assembling that, that Wikipedia entry or an algorithm's made choices about what appears in, um, you know, a Google search or we've made choices at the museum about what gets included in a particular historical narrative, right, and we try to be transparent about those choices as well because I think that's essential. Um, 
you know, we would be transparent not only about our biases, but about the questions we ask and the sources we use and, and what gets put in and what gets left out. You know, I have this question that, that this is something that I've kind of felt kind of, I want to say, well, maybe I'm a little passionate about it. Um, libraries are now doing uh, music and memory programs with, with seniors. And you had mentioned in your presentation the, uh, the endeavor by New York City in the late 30s and early 40s taking a picture of every structure in the city of New York. Now, I found out about that a few years ago and had, pic had retrieved pictures from my father for Christmas of the tenement that he grew up with in Brooklyn right. and the, his grandmother's house that was across the street. And what's really amazing about this picture is, and I'm getting goose pimp pimples just even thinking about it, getting the chills, there were two people in the picture walking away. It was grandparents. Oh, wow. Sure. So I just got a chill. Yeah. It was... Because <laughs> well, I, I, I said, oh, look, there's two people. Right, and my father right. looked at it, and he's a salty old New York City cop. He doesn't... And his eyes got a little red. I said, what's the matter? He goes, can we blow this up? So we blew it up, and we compared it against pictures. It was his grandparents. Wow. So keeping that in mind, is there any way we can reach out to Google and the city of New York to take the Google Street View that they currently do and integrate that with the photos that they took in the 30s and 40s of all the structures. Now, obviously, many of them right. aren't there anymore. Yeah. But think in terms of music and memory and seniors maybe with Alzheimer's or some kind of other dementia where they can put on a VR headset and now walk down the street and it's 1940 or it's 1942. And even if they're from the 50s or 60s, Many of those structures probably still existed mm -hmm. when they were growing up. Mm -hmm. Had, has the museum considered something like that? You know, we wouldn't be the best place to do that, largely because we don't have the kind of collection, right, to do that. You know, I often say that the museum, meaning the Tenement Museum, has been around since 1988, so everybody's collected all the good stuff yeah. <laughs> by then. Uh, the Municipal Archives, right, has the tax photos that you mentioned and that I mentioned in my talk and, and so on. But, uh, you know, there are a variety of different places, um, research libraries, archives, etc. have d done this kind of thing, I think, or tried. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen a really good one, I think, um, in terms of, like, ma using mapping technology um, to access historical sources, right? Mm -hmm. I think New York Public Library has yeah. A, yeah. a map warper tool that's they were, pretty interesting. They were doing, yeah, they had a guy there named Matt Knudsen who was kind of spearheading a project a few years ago where it was you, you could yeah. go, to a, go to a site and they were using different sorts of maps, layering historical, historical maps from the map division on there. You yes, I've seen that actually. Yeah, that's actually yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. And so all those things are in kind of, right, they're all in like beta type type yeah. stages. Permanent beta. I, yeah. I was at a conference <laughs> on Thursday. Mm -hmm. uh, the BOCES ran on like a tech summit and the speaker there um, at Youth Digital uh, is his Twitter handle and he was talking about you know, you know education and, and going on but one of the things that he showed is at the end he was in uh, Google Street View. I think it was Google Street View because I was in the back. But he was able to zoom in, um, slide across the year. You picked a picture of the residence uh -huh. and he was able to slide it from present to past. Oh, wow. So when he slid it to past, he was able to see his... Um, a relative, I think it was just a father or a grandfather. At, at that moment that Google took the, the photo, right. there he was standing there. And then you, you know. Wow. So it is going on. That is me. You, you just got to find it. just have to find it, yeah. Because yeah. if that's something that libraries can set up, imagine, because well, yeah. with the Music and Memories program that we're now at Sachem going to, to start initiating, you know, if we were able to integrate that with some type of VR, I think that would be an amazing to, yeah. thing to do. So I have to ask you, does the Tenement Museum smell like the old tenement houses? 
There's a, there's a distinct smell when you walk in <laughs> when you walk into those old railroad railroad flat. There's a distinct like <laughs> antique smell. Not it's not a bad smell at all. Right, right. But it's a, there's a, there's a distinct smell. So you're talking about like the inherent smell of an old building, yeah. or about yeah. trying to recreate smells from the past. <laughs> those are two different things for me. Do people that, do that? They re- recreate smells from the past? Yeah, kind of. Wow. No, I'm talking about That's just the, the smell of an old building, right. the old woodwork, and right. that 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 smell. There's no way to describe it. It's yeah. just you know it's, you you walk into like that an building. Old building. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. no. does, does it still have that smell? Yeah, of course. God, I got to get over there. Do you do the smells of like bread baking and that also? Or? You know, we've tried that kind of thing. Yes, there are places that do that. You know, you can probably sense that I, I find some of it problematic from, from a variety of different perspectives. One is that they never smell like what they're supposed to yeah, smell like, right? right? It's like because buying that candle, right? Yeah, well, right, exactly, because it's a commercial fragrance producer trying to, you know, essentially fake um, you know, bread baking yeah. or a coal stove or an outhouse, right? Yeah. But there's a really interesting. Um, uh, sort of history or historiography of the senses is something like historians are beginning to explore um, and it is a way of kind of understanding the, the past but a lot of these folks feel very strongly and I'm kind of I guess obviously sort of influenced by their perspective <laughs> that um, you know there's a big difference between trying to understand how somebody say um, in the 1870s might have um, uh, understood the smell of a tenement building or something of that nature and what that might smell like to us today, right? Like there's like an epistemology of the senses. Sure. Wow. And so, you know, where, you know, what we know about the, how the past smelled, uh, particularly where we're talking about folks like um, immigrant tenement dwellers who didn't write about that, right? It's coming from people um, who didn't live in those buildings who were interpreting those smells through a lens of class and race, and right? So, you know, to them, the outhouses smelled really terrible, and I'm sure they were terrible to a certain extent, but the people who lived there, right, that was every day. And so if you're going to come to a a museum, right, and I'm going to fake the smell of a really terrible outhouse, is Uh that going to sort of shape the way you understand, like, hey, this was so bad because these, you know what I mean? It's sort of, I think, think miscolors. Yeah. yeah. Well, that must be a real challenge, too. I mean, because I'm assuming you're an archivist in some way, shape, or form, kind of, sort of. Sure. So that that must be a real big challenge to, to... Recreate the, the the entire 360 degree sense of. I mean, the way you rebuilt the, those the way those, those rooms right. have been rebuilt is right. just unbelievable. Down down to matching the TV and matching the <laughs> wallpaper and the curtains. The amount of right, detail right, is just right. it's fascinating. Right, right. David, I have to tell you, my first date with my girlfriend was at the Tenement Museum. You're kind. Of, you're our kind of person, then. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Like very romantic. That's we, want, we want more to people started. to come on their first dates <laughs> at the museum. In fact, you know, we've done uh, a couple of programs where it's like, love at the tenement, come. (laughs) Or, yeah, that kind of thing. So I think that's great. That really is cool stuff. Yeah. Um, So where did you find the city directory? The the predecessor? Where where does it come from? Yeah, where did... Was that something? Was that a New York public find, or? I mean, it's at all of those different repositories, right? It's like a public document. They're all on microfilm now, as you would expect, and some of them have been digitized. So, um, you know, the city archive, municipal you know, archive, city department of records, or New York Public Library, you know, has them. Yeah. Yeah, because that uh, Bob and I were both kind of we kind of looked at each other like, wait, that existed. There was something. There was a directory before there were telephones. What was the purpose of it? Why were People so you can find somebody, data, yeah, so you or can mail somebody a letter, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, one of the things we often think about, you know, whether it's this, you know, the sense of somebody recording and how does somebody come to be recorded in a historical document, right? And, and what is that uh, interaction like? Because, you know, all, uh, we all lead tours of the museum. Like I said, you know, when I lead the tours, I sort of joke, you know, today we self-enumerate, right? You know, the form comes around, we fill out the bubble. Up until relatively recently, actually, and I'm sure, sure some people here at the conference have memories of a numerator coming to the house, you know, when you don't speak. There's, when there's English language um, you know, issues, so there's language issues, stuff lost in translation. But the city directory thing makes me think of, a, um, I think it's a, you know, 1870 or 1880 um, you know, uh, illustration from Harper's Weekly magazine or one of the sort of 19th century um, illustrated magazines where somebody's, there's like, it's like the city directory person who's collecting information and the resident is like this outside of the, so you know, I don't think it was a pleasant interaction, but... Um, you know, it's another sort of interesting thing about how things are kind of cataloged and how we use them. A lot, you know, a lot of these kinds of documents, right, have been cataloged for the purpose of doing family history research, for genealogy. Uh, you know, oftentimes somebody, whether historian or otherwise, will be looking to use something like the city directory in the way a lot of these digitization projects have been done because something like, for example, Ancestry.com has the money to do this and they're doing it for a particular purpose. So, you know, you can search their city directories, but you can't keyword search them, right? You can search by name, you're going to find your ancestor, but let's say I wanted to find all the butchers, right? All the listings of butchers in 1895 in Manhattan, you can't do that, right? So it's an interesting... um, It's an interesting choice of indexing. Yeah, exactly. But don't forget, the city directory was set up for taxes. You need to know who lived in what building, what they did. And how much they're supposed to pay. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Joe the butcher and Joe the yeah. shoes guy. <laughs> right. Got to know who they are. If you want to Ryan. And where they live. One of our favorite things for David was the personal stories that yes. you got. You know, I think it was incredible because we were talking at the table, too, that the, the stories were so personal that they really they, they ring home with you, you know, and you take them home with you and you remember the experience. So do you have a favorite? I mean, I guess tell us how, tell us how you get them. Right, and what, I guess you go back, right, and you look who was there or who was in the photos or sure. who, who stalking in involved. Yeah. <laughs> a little, payment, a little bit. Maybe a little, a little payment bit. involved, right? <laughs> just five hundred bucks. Tell us your story, but um, I guess tell us how you do it, and then tell us if you have a favorite. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, depends on the particular period of time that we're looking um, to collect stories from, right? So you know, it's a very different process if you're trying to learn about somebody in their life. And the mark they've left on the historical record in 1870 versus 1930 versus, you know, 1960 or 70, it's a very different process, right? Um, meaning that the resources available are different, obviously, you know, for the, um, the further back you go in the past, the less of that kind of personal information uh, that you might be able to find. Sometimes it's really, in some ways, just a, quote, accident of history. You know, we have a... Um, story that we tell about a German Jewish family who lived through, uh, you know, the, the depression of the 1870s, what they called the Panic of 1873, right? They called them panics in, in the 19th century because uh, people panicked and sold stock and all these things, right, and kind of um, sank the economy and a whole variety of other reasons. But, um, you know, I suggest this to say it's only because um, the wife of this family filed um, a court petition to become the administrator of her father-in-law's estate years after her husband disappeared 
yes, he didn't show up in some of the subsequent, you know, documents and so on, you know, city directory and whatever, but that doesn't tell us anything. He might have just been missed by the enumerator or missed by the city directory person. Suffice it to say that, it, you know, it's in this court document that the guy just disappeared. He left the family one morning in 1874 in the midst of the Depression and never came home, right? So in that case, it's an accident of history, so to speak, that this woman filed a petition and we know about the story today. It's much different, right, if we're able to then... As I said, the museum was really, to my mind, um, surprisingly successful in contacting individuals who, say, grew up as children in the museum building in the 1920s or the 1930s, like the young uh, child of Sicilian immigrants I mentioned, Josephine Valdizzi and her married name was Esposito. Um, surprising because, you know, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, you really didn't have the internet, right? How would you find somebody today? We can go back to the earlier conversation. They put, um, you know, they did or, or sought to do press in uh, particular publications, right? AARP magazine, Modern Maturity, Maturity <laughs> right? They were looking for senior citizens <laughs> who, were, I mean, you know, it seems funny, but how, how would you find somebody, right, yeah. you know, 20, 30 years ago sure. um, and locate them and say, did you live in this specific random building on the Lower East <laughs> yeah, Side? On the street at this time. Because we right, want to record right. your story because it's becoming yeah. a museum. I mean, we've had our own experience doing that more recently with this new exhibit I talked about because for the 50s, 60s, for the post-World War II period, a lot of these resources that we normally return to aren't available, the phone book that I mentioned, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, we had to kind of hunt people down, you know, one, um, the family I mentioned, the Holocaust survivor family, which I mean is among the favorites, they're all my favorites, you know, they're kind of like children, right, you know, you kind yeah, of, sure. uh, I spend so much time with these uh, these these stories and these families and, and the individuals and, and um, the family histories that they, they often kind of seem that way. But suffice it to say, in this case, um, you know, we were able to learn that this Holocaust survivor family lived in the building. We could like find the living daughter listed in the phone book, and you know, send letters and things and make phone calls. And um, for a while, we get, we received no response. And um, when we finally were able to get in touch uh, with and, and have an audience with these folks, they said, oh, you know, we received the letters, but, you know, it was on the museum letterhead, and, you know, we read the first paragraph where we were explaining who we were, and it's, right, and they and were they like, threw we, it out. We, they thought we wanted money from yeah. them. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, how much, right, you That's go funny. through your mail, and you know, throw a... flyer, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, some of it's, I think, just... Um, some of it's luck, right? It's, it's yeah, luck. A lot of luck. Absolutely. Do you ever Absolutely. have anybody walk into you guys and say, yeah, yes. my mother and my father yep. used to live? That's, that's, that's great. Yep. Yeah. Those are really nice to hear. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah in some cases, you know, um, because uh, the museum obviously would, fo like any other institutional, focus its resources on, you know, we're doing an exhibit uh, on X subject. We're going to, you know, and there's a, a variety of criteria that goes into choosing which story gets told and how, uh, but that leaves out a lot of people, you know, we have, we keep what we call the former residence list, we have a file on every known person, but, you know, it could be a single mention in a single document, we might know the name, but, you know, as we're saying, somebody might show up and say, I was doing my own family history, and I found out so-and-so lived in this building, and here, I have all this other stuff, and they'll, yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's like episode two of our podcast. Yeah. Photos, yeah. and all these things, so, yeah. If you don't know episode two, you gotta listen to episode two. You gotta two. listen to episode two, yeah. <laughs> my father had a box of pictures and teaching certificates going back to the 1890s. Turns wow. out it was all associated with a library, with a, a family that founded a library in upstate New York. Mm. So it's a whole big, like, it's almost like a mystery story right. trying to find out. But these ancestry and some other resources mm -hmm. we were able to find because of the plaque they took 
they took a picture of the plaque when the building was dedicated, and we were able to trace it back, and we were able to reunite the uh, the library with the materials. It was really kind of a fun Very thing. Cool. Same idea, though. Same same concept. Okay. So you know, you know what? For housekeeping, we have to have them introduce themselves. Yes, and then we, we have to get that. plugs too. If you have plugs. Yeah. So <laughs> if you don't mind, Emily, introduce yourself, and then David will go with you and just um, tell us who you are, what you do, and where we can get in contact with you. I'm uh, Emily Drabinsky. I'm coordinator of library instruction at Long Island University, Brooklyn, home of the Blackbirds. Where I also serve as secretary of the Long Island University Faculty Federation. And you can find me at Twitter. I tweet constantly at, at E Drabinsky or at Emily Drabinsky at liu.edu. Okay. And I'm David Favalor. I'm the Director of Curatorial Affairs at the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. Um, and you can find us, meaning the museum, at www.tenement.org. And you can contact me directly at dfavaloro at tenement.org. Great. And Carl? I'm uh, Carl Vidovich. I'm the Administrative Coordinator for the East and Suffolk Postage School Library System. Um, you can find me on Twitter at eSuffolkSLS. Okay, and we're going to take a short our pleasure. This is fantastic. This is great. This is really a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank we're you. going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're, I think we're going to get we're going to get five bucks for this. Ellen oh, Druda Ellen may be Eric. coming. Eric will be in here. Chris yeah. will be in here. Good. Yep. Okay, so we'll be back in just a moment. Modern choreography in, in America, big in twenties, and she was in our dance program uh, in our wow. dance department. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now we are back. We had a little technical difficulty, but now we are back with Ellen Druda. Yay! Five dollars, Ellen Druda. <laughs> okay, kaching. Um, Ellen Druda, uh, head of digital services, Half Hollow Hills Community Library, and um, you can email me there, edruda, D-R-U-D-A, at hhhlibrary.org. And on Twitter, I'm Double Duchess, D-B-L-D-U-C-H-E-S-S. So tweet at me. So what do you okay. do over there at Half Hollow? Oh, yeah, what do you do? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the projects that we're involved there is we were partnered with the volunteer organization Enable. Guys, sni snickering at making sure to hit the record button. That's oh. all I'm doing is making sure it's recording. That's it. um, yeah, we work with the volunteer organization Enable. We have our teens doing community service, um, assembling assistive devices, and um, we then pass them along to uh, Enable their assistive hands. And the other thing that we have at the library is the John Coltrane um, computer and collection. John Coltrane was a Dix Hills resident, which is where our library is, and he composed his most famous piece, um, A Love Supreme, there in that building uh, before he passed away. And so we have a whole collection of his and a computer loaded with his music and um, pictures donated by uh, uh, probably the world's biggest Coltrane collector. He, he has donated pictures to put on our computer too. So stop by and dig some jazz. Okay, George. Hi, I'm Brian Lynn. Oh, Brian, I'm sorry. Uh, that's okay. I called you George. Why did I call you George? <laughs> Record button, wrong names. <laughs> right. Just I'll get accept that. Okay, I'm going to step in the bathroom. I'm going to step in the bathroom. I thought this was a first class operation. Exactly. Yeah, well, you learn, you learn quick. We look good, but we don't. <laughs> oh, please. You learn quick. So I'm Brian Lim. Um, here's my email handle it's B L Y M 
at adelphi.edu. So I encourage you to contact me directly there after this podcast. I'm the Dean of University Libraries at Adelphi University, which is in Garden City. And I hope that all of you have heard of Adelphi University. Uh, we've been known as Long Island's best kept secret, but we are no longer best kept secret. As of right now. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, debut. our debut. university actually started in Brooklyn, the other part of Long Island, in 1896. And we moved over to Garden City in 1929, if I think I have my chronology correct. Um, I uh, work in Swerble Library, which is the main library on campus. Swerble Library was designed by a very famous mid-century architect, Richard Neutra, who was featured on the cover of Time magazine, I believe, in the late 50s. Um, he was brought in by uh, executives at Grumman Corporation, uh, who really helped uh, with funding the building of Swerble Library in the in the 1915 uh, late late 50s, early 60s. And one of the things that attracted me to Adelphi was. Swerble Library building itself. It's a beautiful gem, you know, something that you might expect to see in Los Angeles mm. or somewhere in California. And I'm from California. Um, it's a building that has really withstood the test of time given all the changes in technology and library land and the, the change from libraries as warehouses of print books, et cetera, to uh, places where there's collaboration and interaction and a lot of activity. It's kind of a testament to good design, and um, it's it's an amazing place to be, to be working at there in that building and to be at Adelphi. Um, we also have a terrific archives and special collections, which is in a separate building, um, across the way. Unfortunately, you know, not in the main building, but eventually it'll come back into the main building. And in that special collections and archives, we have a lot of history of Long Island itself, including history of the Grumman Corporation. We have uh, a, mo uh, a model of the lunar module that Grumman Corporation made, I believe, in Sayville out here. It could, be, uh, uh, could have been made closer into Garden City at, I think, their corporate headquarters there. So I encourage you to come out and visit us. You have my email. Thank you. OK. Hi, I'm Sally Stieglitz. My email is s-s-t-i-e-g-l-i-t-z at adelphi.edu. I'm the digital learning and instruction librarian at Adelphi. So I do a little bit of everything, I think, like most librarians. <laughs> but I'm in research and instruction services. And uh, something new we're doing this year that's pretty interesting is uh, we're piloting a three-credit first-year seminar course for the students called Two Truths and a Lie that I'm co-teaching with our former uh, coordinator of instructional services. We couldn't let her go, so we made her stay and teach. <laughs> so this is really interesting because we're uh, combining um, news literacy and information literacy for the student. And we kind of have this idea that these 20 students are going to be the best trained researchers on campus. Even though they're freshmen now, everybody else is getting maybe an hour of library instruction and they're getting uh, 15 weeks of it. That's great. So it's pretty amazing. And the other thing that we're doing that's kind of interesting is we recently started a uh, library book club because, I mean, as librarians, we have no time to read. But through <laughs> 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 that, what are we reading this month? What's the book? Uh, the Sherman Alexi memoir. Yeah. You don't have to say you love me, yeah. which is really moving. And if you can listen to it on an audio, it's amazing. So I'm going to pass this along to Half Hollow Hills. Charlene Muir, Assistant Library Director at Half Hollow Hills. Um, I was in the beginning, or I guess I still am, or in the stacks with Ellen Druder. 
It started off with <laughs> Helen Cross and our director's suggestion. Chris stepped in, be in between jobs. Chris Kratz. Chris Kratz, and Fabulous started to get this off the ground. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, in the beginning, it was like, oh my gosh, how are we going to run this? Uh, we have some followers. It's always fun. It's not as serious as you guys. It's about wait, five wait, we're minutes. Serious? Right. We're so not serious. We're so not serious. <laughs> Haven't you it's learned just in the last ten minutes? It's about five minutes long, <laughs> and we always press the button to record. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you just became my new best friend. <laughs> Wow. And let's not forget, innestacks.wordpress.com. That's correct. My email is cmuhr at hhhlibrary.org. Uh, we just passed a bond for a brand new building. And guess what's going to be oh, in that That's building? A special room that we can do our podcast awesome. so that people can give us a little time and quiet. It's incredible. Where are you building it? Let us come and visit. On the same spot. 55 Vanderbilt Parkway. They'll be knocking down our old building and building something brand new. We'll be relocating to one of the district schools that have been closed. Bursley? Um, no, not Bursley. Uh -oh. yeah. okay. And now, Mr. Kretz. Hello, uh, this is Chris Kretz. Uh, our two-timer. Two-timer? Chris.kretz at stonybrook.edu. I've been at Stony Brook almost a year now. They're Southampton campus, which is a sort of a jewel, I think. A small graduate level uh, campus out in Southampton. We have a American literary landmark. Our windmill was designated mm -hmm. for uh, Tennessee Williams wrote a, a play there on the death of Jackson Pollock. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. We also have the Jackson Pol the Pollock Krasner House Study Center is located in our library. Director uh, Helen Harrison. And we, it's a weird, it's an interesting mix. I won't say weird. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a blend of the, the probably most well known for its MFA program, MFA in Creative Writing. Uh, there's a famous Southampton Writers Conference every summer, draws a lot of uh, people to the campus. But then we also have a strong health science program uh, presence, occupational therapy, physical therapy. So I've been talking to Ellen about some 3D printing of, of prosthetic mm -hmm. devices for us. Going to get you on board. And then we also have down the block a uh, the the School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences has a research station with a fleet of boats and tanks and stuff. So we get all all sorts of questions in the library. So um, one of the things I've been excited about in my time there, we've been working. I mentioned the Pollock Krasner House, and they're actually his house is further east in um, springs. Out, springs outside of East Hampton and. We did a. We were almost did a live stream. We tried to live stream, but there's an art crawl that they do on the main campus, and we we thought that the Pollock House should be included. So, we we set up a live stream to have her on site as part of the art crawl, so that people could see. It, we had done a backup video, so luckily that no <laughs> we had that. In the as we know, Backups technical problems happen. As everybody keeps looking at my board yeah. and making sure that it's actually and, recording. And apparently, the, the Wi-Fi out in that area of the island is not as strong oh. as we Who'd wanted it to be. But but so in, in terms of what we're hearing today, some of what I'm interested in is is media, obviously, um, and finding new ways for libraries to sort of contribute to the media landscape. And well, I, I'll, I'll just mention, I also co-host the Long Island History Project, longislandhistoryproject.org. Uh, yes, very great web, great website, yeah. great great uh, podcast. Great content. On as that. is in the stacks. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. 
Sure. Why, why are you giving me that look, Bob? I'm just, you know, just looking. And I think does the, the bride has to use this room. In about they have a wedding. Oh. We're, we're in the bridal suite. Oh, we moved yeah. it around. We totally transformed the place. Yeah. Just, <laughs> all kinds of furniture in the bathroom. Yeah. And yeah. That's right. Where's the group? Yeah. Look, what is yeah. that thing? That's everything we had to move in there. It's all stuff we had to move. Like a drum, right? Yeah. It was a table. It wasn't going to work. Last stop table. So you guys are all here for the Long Island Library Resources Council. I think it's the 26th annual, right? Is that right? Is and, uh, the, yeah, and the tagline is Design the Experience, Risk, and Reward. So what do you guys think of the conference so far? Love it. Love it. Yeah, right. it's great. great. Yeah. It's we, great. So far we've heard from two speakers, right? Emily yes. and David. They were mm -hmm. just in, we just interviewed them. Um, and we had some great topics that we all and talked about. Have gone to the Tenant yeah. Museum? I've gone. It's amazing. No, I haven't and gone seeing yet. such a small area that has so many people and not just one family shared the bathroom. Sometimes they had to bring the water up. Wow. And you really get a, a lesson in history and to see what these people struggle through every day. Now, and when they there was no privacy. Interactive, do they have the smell? We were oh, just, we just, we just talking about that. Talking oh, about really? that. I had asked if it had they, that tenement building smell. Yeah, because of the bathroom situation, Sean. And, we were no. talk, and they were talking about trying to recreate some of that and Bob had brought up maybe you have baking bread or something mm -hmm. like oh, that and then I was going the, the, bath, the bathroom yeah. came up as well they, they brought that up the, the yeah, house smell and things like that but yeah. they said they couldn't get it authentic enough is what uh, they said right. uh, they don't right. want to get any yeah. smells at all yeah. but they tried to recreate um, whether there'd be a little dollhouse or doilies or bed or sometimes they had clothing that was hanging yeah. up a television they had they recreated the television and they, or they had, I'm sorry they rebuilt it so that it works right. and all that right. yeah. and the record player he said when you touch the record player yeah. it, it plays plays or it talks yeah. to you or yeah. you know what they use the, those connect devices from um and one thing i'll say about the conference i'm on the planning committee and it's one, one thing we've tried to do at least in the last couple of years is bring people from the outside yes. so david from the Huge. museum world yeah. we've had people from the education world and so you know anyone that you talk to or, or that you hear like what other industry can we bring to this conference to sort of help teach librarians or give us ideas mm -hmm. that they might be doing in, in another industry that we could bring in. So it's always great to hear you guys did a great job. Yeah. Yeah. get excited about hearing someone from outside the field. I think that's what's nice about this conference is we're hearing from people, you know, experts from other fields, what can we learn from them and what, what ideas we can exchange. Outside of our silo. And also what they're sharing. Some of them are sharing the same issues that we are. Right. That's right. Well, it makes sense because some of what we do, especially nowadays where libraries are recreating themselves, some of what we see from the outside, we can take a piece of. Maybe we're not going to build a tenement museum in our library, but maybe we can take an aspect of that. Maybe the, the idea of that kinetic touching that mm -hmm. now yeah, allows that you library. to have a sewing machine tell you a story. Right. Maybe we can integrate that into something. I think where that would be in your local history collection. Exactly. You, know. you, you pull open the card catalog and it starts talking. Yeah. Telling yeah. What's, a, what's a card catalog? I'm <laughs> sorry, for our users then. It, it, it that our belongs in a museum. A lot of our new learners, they're visual. Yes. That's they're right. visual Very learners. So. Yeah. Right. You know, they want it right there. They want to see it. They don't even want to always read it, but they mm -hmm. want to see it. Yeah. yeah. I, I really like the engagement uh, with the users with technology, but also in face-to-face -face engagement with the docents yes, who were explaining yes. the exhibitions. And so there was a downplay on just all the whiz-bang technology, which is whiz-bang, mm -hmm. if you are enamored with all that. But it was about the conversations that were taking place. 
And I thought that was really fascinating because the technology is going to change. And yeah, we're seeing that. I mean, I'm seeing that in, in my world in the academic libraries. The technology will change tomorrow. But the conversations are what we're going to have to focus on that will be enabled by whatever technology will exist. Right. Yeah, I also thought it was interesting when he spoke about not just choosing technology because it was new, but what you're trying to do, what yeah, purpose does purpose. it serve. Yeah. You, don't, you don't hear that very often. I mean, coming from the technology background for the last 20 or so years, it's always let's jump on the next big thing that comes out. You know, well, if that library is talking about this, then we have to do it. Not we should do it, but we have to because they're doing it. You know, so to hear them. Patrons. What works yeah. for your patrons? What do your yeah. patrons want? Yeah. Your community, they may want that, but right. maybe my community doesn't need it. That's right. They're beyond that, and, and they want something different. And to hear David talk about, like, looking into the why before the do, I thought that was great, because not many people are doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, they would be like, well, mobile, you have to have a mobile app to have a good tenement, tenement museum, you know, but that's not the case. So. Well, sometimes you don't know until you try, though. Yeah. And they think. Yeah. Our, pa our patrons don't want it, and then when you just try it, they're like, oh, we love this. Yeah. So you, it's a balance. Yeah. But the docents do give a, um, a step back into history. Yeah. And I would rather hear a docent sometimes than, I mean, it's nice to he hear the sewing machine, as he said, yeah. go on, or the record player, the music. But it's nice to hear you need what the story. they're actually, yes, and how it's yeah. relating to a human being. And how, so, fa how fascinating is it that they were actually able to find people who lived in that actual building, wow, were able yeah, to recreate and take pictures and then replicate those rooms? Yeah, that was that completely was fascinating. Fantastic. And I think you want to go back into your own family history yeah. and find out when they came. I mean, I've gone to Ellis Island, you know, and you're going to do the, uh, the scrapings of your parents' or grandparents' name, you know, on the wall that they have. Yeah. And I think that that's what's happening is the people are going to these places and coming back and looking for answers from ancestry and from us as librarians. Mm -hmm. really, well, what I... It just really resonated with us because we have um, on college campuses concerned about students with DACA and immigration issues. And uh, we recently put together a lib guide on immigration research, and we're in the process of developing a blog on uh, oh, immigration great. stories as Good well. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. And I, I think that gets to Emily's talk in the morning, sort of thinking through our assumptions more about how we catalog things yes. and, and what do they yeah. say about the mm -hmm. prevailing culture or the power structure. You know, it's not something I delved into, but I can see where she's coming from. Where yeah. you, just the categories we put things in say something about who's in power at any given time. Yeah. The time is right for that, too, politically, socially. I mean, every, things seem to be in an upheaval as far as power struggles in our society. Well, not only that, we're also redefining everything in society now. You know, what was black and white before? Maybe mm -hmm. 30 different shades of gray now. Absolutely right. Um, so, like when she was talking about in terms of talking about homosexuality, it was more linked, it, it was a subject heading for deviancy, mm -hmm. yes. which is... Mm -hmm. Kind of not right anymore. Not right anymore. I mean, no, it's not, but I think governmentally it's going back to that. It is. I think it's not gray anymore. It's gray to a lot of us, but I think it's black and white to some of the people that are in power. So unfortunately, unfortunately, that's what, what we can do. Right. So, but it was interesting to hear how, it, and part of I think what she was trying to highlight was that that the structure that we catalog in now is still, it, it's a dinosaur. It's, it's still old classification thinking. And maybe as much as Dewey in the public world and Library of Congress in the academic world is still the mainstay, right. 
maybe there needs to be a we need a third alternative uh, or a revision like in we'll go back to subject classification yep and not and we know there are libraries that have been doing yep. that and drifting away from Dewey and yeah. making it more accessible to the public mm -hmm. that does not like Dewey doesn't know how to figure it out and they just want to browse mm -hmm. and I think she said she mentioned something in um, in her talking about uh, what would she call it now? She called it the um, the ordering systems that represent chaos. Hmm. So instead of having something that is so rigid. rigid, something that has a little more chaos to it. I mean, I don't know if you want to go as far as to say like a bookstore where they all everything's just thrown on the shelf. Mm -hmm. But maybe maybe but it's maybe, time for another classification. But system. maybe a, maybe a subject classification where people can, like she said explore everything under history, explore geography, or where you know it's under that umbrella, so at least you're in the right area. Right. Well, and one thing if we think about the future is, is coming or is here is augmented reality or virtual reality, and then yeah. if you have the metadata, you can walk through a universe of a library and right. make it look like whatever you want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Customize it. Or, yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. one of those people that wants to jump on whether pe you know, right. the patrons want it or They'll not. They'll come along eventually. I want to play with it. Put those goggles on. Yeah. Totally, just, totally exactly. social. It, it sounds like the, at the very end of Interstellar when they yeah. go through the black, oh, yeah. when he's floating through the, <laughs> right. the, the bookcase. Yeah, the bookcase and everything. Yeah. yeah. And that's connected to beaconing technology, which can identify your personal preferences and needs based on what it perceives of you as you walk into the door of a library. You know, uh, we've been, we're actually exploring that uh, at Adelphi uh, so that if a nursing student walks into our building, um, they will be identified as a nursing student and then we'll, then we'll see on the digital displays as nursing materials or related to the coursework mm -hmm. or Hopefully. other things that they might be interested in. but. Wow. It's an interesting world, you know. Uh, you know, are we just going to be delivering to people the information they expect and that they're familiar with, or how are we going to use technology to expand their world to discover things that they may not know or care to know about, but they should know? So that's somebody that has to be participation, correct, from the student. Yeah. The only problem that I see with that is, again, we're limiting what they should know or what exactly. they don't know. I know that there's a special focus, but what about all the other stuff? Right, and that's where I think libraries play a role. How do they define themselves? More than a nursing student, maybe she has great right. interest in architecture. Yeah, exactly. What Emily exactly. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have beacons in our library. Yes. Uh, how yeah. do they work out? Uh, they're great. They're really, we get, they're very, very simple, but we get good stats. We can see people have our app. The beacons are, um, they work in conjunction with the library app, and so when people come in, they get a, a notification if they have a book on hold. Ah, that's uh, good. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, we do not tell them that they have fines. <laughs> so that's kind of wow. mean, like, eh. But um, we do tell them if they have holds, and we can also, if they go into the adult area, they get a specific message saying, hey, check out our wow. display. And if they go into children's, yeah. they can get a customized Programs. message there. There's a program Sounds or whatever. Yeah, yeah it was very easy to implement if you have any questions. E drew to well, at HHS yeah. library. <laughs> yeah. Five bucks. Wow. Five bucks. Five bucks. Five bucks. Public library worlds are in some ways. I yeah. mean, you know, light years ahead of where we are in academic libraries. And I think that you could, you're more accountable to the public. You're, you're responsive and in a ways that. Sometimes we're not as structured. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You have to I, have a great. Uh, we uh, can, I agree with we, that. We can take chances. Yes. You know? uh, and it oh. fails, it fails, and it works. Whoa. And that, that's that's wonderful to hear because we're doing that at my university and that's my library. Good. That's our mantra. If you, 
you know, yeah. we, we can fail forward. And oh, I like try, that. Trying yeah. to, Check you know, that and that's not, that's not my phrase. <laughs> I know I've heard that a million years ago. Copyright. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've been fortunate to start thinking this way. And, and uh, you know, I, I have that mindset. Not everyone has it in the library, but we're, we're getting there. We have to be there and to be more publicly responsive. Well, it's funny it's that you. It's it's yeah. interesting that you bring up the the concept of failure, because society today, at, in in the library world too, whether it's in schools with testing or anything, we don't allow ourselves to fail. We're always striving for that hundred. We're always striving to be right. We're always striving for the the you know to grab that brass ring, and at at Sachem and go ahead and laugh at me. Uh, I said Sachem. I love it. Um, with what we do with creation with our creation stuff, our 3D printing, our engraving, if it fails, it's not a problem. Please, and I always tell people, please try to fail. Don't try to be right, because if you're trying to be right, there's gonna be something wrong with it. If you have the expectation that this isn't gonna work out exactly the way you want it to be, and it does, then wow, you, you hit it the first time. You hit the home run the first time up to bat. But the concept of failure, and failing forward is a great term, but the concept of failing is not something that is bad. Edison didn't invent the light bulb the first mm -hmm. time. How many times, how many episodes did I say that? A lot, yeah. A lot, yeah. <laughs> I, I can hear them. Stop saying that. We know. So, but the, the concept of failing forward, which I'm gonna, I'm stealing this, I'm sorry. And I stole uh, it from somebody else, and I can't yeah. figure out the attribution. Public domain, it's like five That person right now <laughs> is slamming the table. That's my, that's my $5. That's my five dollars. That's my five dollars. going around the table. Yeah. So, you know, the, the concept of failure we have to take the, the negative connotation of failure because failure is only getting one step closer to succeeding. And I'm glad that, that Adelphi is starting to embrace that because I'm sure in a college structure it's a little more rigid than it would be like we, what we are in, in the public library world. I don't yeah. know if any of you are doing Long Island Reads, but the new book, Spaceman, I'm on yes. that committee, mm -hmm. is a lot about that concept of failure and trying again. Yeah. That's really his whole story, and it's definitely one of the threads that we can pull from that for discussion in our, um, in our programming. Yeah. It would be very good for us that for student success. Yeah. I think that there's yeah. a lot of and lessons that the young audiences can hear yeah. can learn from that, yeah. too, about failing, because it's all about succeeding. Yeah, right. you know, and you yeah. discover the testing, the college, the boards, the SATs, and it goes on and on and on. And we push them to be better and better. In our community, I mean, there's so many tutors because they've got to not just excel, they've got to step past that. So they don't always experience the failure. And if they do, sometimes there's yeah. worse consequences than we even want to mention. Yeah. Sometimes they don't even know how to handle it. They also yeah. don't have the concept that they don't have to be good at everything. I yeah. Know. Right, exactly. Well, we're all very familiar with failure uh, <laughs> <laughs> around this table. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We listen to our podcast and go, what is that? Who noise? said that? Right? <laughs> 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 that's, the that's the library pros. That's the library pros tagline: "Fail forward." Fail forward. <laughs> it's going to be now. Yeah. It's our motto. <laughs> but the concept of failure is something. I mean, if you think in terms of the movie Apollo 13 and what they had to do in order to get those guys back, and how many times was Gary Sinise laying in that in the lunar module and failing mm -hmm. before they figured it out and got those guys home. Right. And my kids were watching that and like, why can't they just get this right? Why can't they just figure this out? We don't know. Like, well, you realize, first of all, they have to use a nine volt battery to run everything, the whole thing. Like, well, why don't they just, and then, you know, then it just goes into a generational, you know, 
misunderstanding of... they just Google it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but one of the funniest things space. that we have is uh, we have Commodore 64 in our, in our makerspace because it, we, we do a, a retro tech spot, so we swap out a new piece of old technology every month. But the Commodore 64 is adored by so mm. many different people. We left it out there, so we, put, we now have another spot, so we swap something out every month. And it's so much fun to see the little kids go over there and go, G-O-O-G-L-E dot com, and hit enter, and it says syntax error. Right, right. Like, why won't this go to Google? This is broken, mister. This is yeah. broken. Why, why is your computer blue? Why can't I Google it? So, you know, it's, it's interesting to bring that concept to kids that not everything was the way it is now. And how... I don't want to say, I don't want to sound like the grouchy old man, but how fortunate they are to see and to be in this time where you can take something out of your, your pocket that is tiny and it has more, as much or more computing power than desktop computers now. It's, and then their children, I mean, I have a one-year-old granddaughter and she just got her first iPad. <laughs> so, uh, and she's swiping on the iPad. Before she's so, walking, right? Before, before she's she walking. She's not wow. walking. Wow. Right. So, Imagine her life. It's all going to be AI and VR and AR. And something that hasn't much. been invented yet. And stuff that we, and, you know, implants and, you know, she's going to have a robot for a teacher. And I mean, there's so much that we can't even fathom, but somebody out there is cooking up. You can't have, wait. If you want to have fun, I, we just went away with my daughter and her friends for her birthday. And uh, watch Star Trek with some 16 year olds. <laughs> Oh the original God. Star Trek. I can't even watch it now. It looks ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> they don't stop laughing. It's hysterical. They're just laughing well, at the whole thing. It is. Scotty, yeah. No. Like, right. why is there a dial on his iPhone? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that but, was a little hokey. Come on. What I like is I, I finally realized that if you watch the old shows, they're actually drinking coffee on the bridge next to the uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. Every time yeah. we talk about you know not drinking right. in the library, right. I say, well, they did it on Star Trek. Right. Right. So so I I that was in the future. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It was part of the reason the show was canceled. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Spilled it. Somebody spilled it. They couldn't Solo. do the show anymore. Yeah. The Enterprise yeah. went right down. <laughs> that's right. So tell me something cool that's happening in Half Hollow. Something cool. Oh, something I, cool I that you guys are doing. It that's the new. First time, um, Other than losing your minds thinking about how you can. Oh, move doing a building project. Right. Well, yeah. hey, so um, the building project has consumed a lot yeah. of our free time. I was time. telling the fabulous Chris Kretz that we're going to have. Uh, how much do I get paid? <laughs> every time I mention <laughs> his bucks. name, you guys get give him five bucks. Um, our our Melville building. Charlene was the previous branch manager of Melville. Uh, is going to be celebrating their 60th anniversary in 2019 and our current branch manager showed me there is a filing cabinet there four giant drawers way deep filled with paper all the old um, pictures newspaper clippings Mm. newsletters uh, it's just a ton of crap um, it was first housed by the um, fire department before the library took over in the basement Mm so that it used to be a two-room schoolhouse. So we have a lot of visitors that will come back and go, oh, here was the bell, because Mm -hmm. they used to leave at lunchtime, go to lunch, and then come back. And when they do come in, they go, oh, it's so different, because in the uh, late 80s, there was an extension with the Melville branch. But that's the original library. 
So I'm, I was inspired by David talking about the museum exhibits because now we need to digitize all this material because now it's crumbling away. And if the somebody lights a match, resolution was oh bad. the resolution God. was bad. And I had done some that had terrible resolution. So I want to re do that, and then I would be fun. We could make an interactive display. That sure. would be so yeah, super awesome. So that's maybe that's in the future yeah. for Hip Hollow. That's really exciting. Yeah, fun. I love that stuff. So what do you have in the hopper for Delphi? Well, I have uh, restroom renovations on my mind. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, it's all about the restroom, right? Actually, it is. No and, restroom, and, no uh, people. I, I, I was going to be uh, no gender, I mean. Yeah. No, actually, they and are no touch. Uh, right. and doors. Gen they're, they're gender neutral right now, but they're, they need to be ADA compliant and they need to be attractive. And so, as I mentioned, I, I work in a mid-century building, and our restrooms are mid-century, mm -hmm. but they're not up to sure. par what we, we expect these days. So that's the first thing that's on my mind, and I keep thinking of you know the Maslow hierarchy mm -hmm. of yeah. needs, exactly. sure. so that you know you have to address the basic needs first in an academic library, and that's one of them. Um, but above that, uh, we're also looking at uh, redesigning the way we provide services at, you know, we have, like many academic libraries, disparate service points. We have an old-fashioned information commons, which was installed when information commons, uh, for those in the academic library world, will be very familiar with this scenario, about 20 years ago, and all of a sudden, everything was about putting all, everything together next to desktops. We did that in a big way all of a sudden 20 years ago, and now it doesn't work for us. And now we have to bring back a single service point, really, for all of our services, because that's what the students expect. Mm -hmm. We're designing everything around the students' needs and students' expectations. And they, when they come into our library, they don't want to go upstairs to the reference desk. Mm -hmm. They want everything there right at their fingertips. One-stop shopping. Exactly. Right. And that's, yeah. I'm sure that you've done that in the public libraries yeah. already. And, and yeah. that is so happening. That's, that's our challenge. It's building yeah. a new building and what our patrons need and how we can access that and grow through the years and not have to reinvent exactly. what we did or do another renovation yeah. 10 years down. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's a big challenge. So if we have to reinvent, then. Well, that's what we're talking about right. we um, need to be in our to designs on flexible. Flexible. Yeah. Um, and the nature areas. of our reference services have changed so dramatically yes. now that exactly. they can on their phones yes. from age one. Mm -hmm. you know? and, <laughs> and then what's happening in libraries, in academic libraries, we're providing a lot of our services remotely. You know, the, right. the instruction, the reference, chat, ha chat happens mm -hmm. on, in chat, in, embedded in courseware. I know that Sally's doing a lot of that already. I mean, you're actually starting to pilot that out at one of our uh, extension centers, not That's really right. a branch. At Hopog. Yeah, we're going to totally renovate that, right? Yeah, and then <laughs> exactly. Aren't we? All right. We're committing a, a new vision. A, a new committee vision. of two of us. Yeah. <laughs> we're bringing new vision to it. And it's a challenge. How do you get them in your building? Yeah. Like the same thing with our patrons. How do we get them to want to come in? What do we give them that they need to come in? Exactly. And part of our vision with the podcast, or Helen Corson's vision with the podcast was, they can't get to us. So what do they need? They need a suggestion for a book. They're too busy to come in, and they just want to listen to something. And I used to always say it was like a book talk in the stacks. And those few little minutes up, oh, they got a good one. They can put it in their computer, reserve the book, 
or even call up. Mm -hmm. But it's our challenge to find out what they want and, and how they can get it from us to make us viable. Yeah, that's great to have that remote service and easily accessible. And I love the, the, you know, the connection that we can make with a human who works in a library through a podcast. Right. You know, it's, sure. so it's, I love listening to podcasts. I love listening to Moth and uh, Radio Lab mm -hmm. and This American Life. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what I look forward to on the weekends. Yeah. And, Those are good. Um, and they're fun. It's this, like, you know, Ellen, when Ellen and I have done this, I said, when Helen had suggested, I said, oh, like click and clack. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Let's do something where we have that connection. So Ellen and I, um, she's been at the library a year or two more. 30? Me? 30 years? Uh, yes, 30, and going I'm, on 31. So I'm beginning my 28th year, so we have We're some old. history, <laughs> and we have a good connection, and I think that's so important, as you guys know, and Chris, with your podcast. You've got to have that running element where we can talk to each other. Well, now she's used to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a little bit different in the beginning. I was not allowed to ask We're questions. Cool. Wow. We're cool now, Charlotte. And she would look across We're the cool. table with Chris and like go, don't ask me a question. <laughs> but to have that, that's what you want. That's yeah. what you need. And that's what people enjoy. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, I keep going back to, the, you know, one of my favorite reference books, true reference books that's in my, my uh, office. It's The Atlas of New Librarianship by Richard Lankies, I think that's oh, his name. Yes. And I keep going back David. to one, David, 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 David one quote in there, and which essentially says that libraries are about places where conversations are created. You know, it's not about the technology, it's not about the stacks, it's not about the building, but it's about facilitating conversation. And, I feel like that's really our role. Yeah, we were just teaching about scholarship as a conversation. That's right. Two days ago. Yeah. And they're beginning to get it. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I'll plug one thing because I was torn today because it's also Open Access Week. And Stony Brook oh. at our main library, we're doing a lot of events on open access. And they're actually, they're meeting there today. But one of the things that uh, the Stony Brook Library uh, pioneered in the SUNY system was an open access policy where faculty would uh, deposit their writings in, into this open access repository. So that's a whole nother spinning off of this idea, but th that the scholarship is not locked up in these paywall journals, mm -hmm. that, that there are free versions of it out there, making it more accessible uh, to, to all sorts of people. And you know, we, we, there's a whole, we could go through the litany of how much federal research money goes into these uh, research projects, and then the published uh, results of it are locked mm -hmm. up by publishers and behind paywalls. So an open access policy sort of frees a lot of this information, which should be free in the first place. Um, the other thing I'll plug is actually, I don't know when we're posting this, so in, in, the, in the time warp of podcast tomorrow morning, <laughs> I will be at the, um, the Long Island Museum has a symposium uh, called In Harm's Way, and it, we're talking about um, natural disasters on the island. And, and my part of it is just some moral histories I had done with people from the 1938 hurricane. But it's talking about um, Superstorm Standy and, and just how we can plan for the future and, and react better and, and plan for you know future disasters. So, but that grew out of a podcast I had done. So my participation, you know, like you were saying, getting these voices out there just adds to the the richness of the, the richness of the conversation. And I, and I hope you're also mentioning about the role that libraries played in Sandy and Super Standy. Storm. Yeah. Actually, right. and I'll, I'll make sure I bring that up now because I know they were centers, and I think one of your guys' guests said they were libraries are like the Red Cross of the mind or something. Yes. In, in disaster oh, yes. times. 
I forget who said that. Yeah. And so, you know, in, where people just need somewhere to go and be inside and charge their phones when they have yeah. no electricity yes. and stuff. So, yeah. So, I mean, libraries uh, have morphed into, yeah. you know, centers of more than just books. It's well, it, it, and that's a great point, too, where we're talking about the evolution of a library, right? So, we have to get away from the mindset of it was... It's an old lady sitting behind a desk with hey, hair in a bun. I didn't, I didn't mean you. You looked right at me. <laughs> you don't, you don't you know. have your bun on. You don't have a bun in your hair. You looked right at you. You looked and, right at me. And, you know, there's this monolithic desk that, that houses all of the knowledge of the world. Um, and, and things are changing now where reference desks don't have to be these monstrosity exactly. pieces of furniture. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could walk around with an iPad and... Not necessarily rolling or roaming. Yeah. But rolling. Yeah. Find a librarian in the that. stacks. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So like I'm with celebrities. I know that voice. Um, but oh. the whole idea of, yes, there is a center that the librarians are, have on duty where they have to, you know, okay, I have desk hours from 2 to 5. I'm on the desk. But when I'm taking the patron to the stack to find that book, and maybe the book isn't there even though the catalog says that it's there. If I have some kind of device with me, and right now I use my phone, and we, uh, Sachem has their own app, so I can just log in and get into Encore and, and you know, look to see, you know, okay, maybe we should be in this section versus that section. Like uh, yesterday I had um, a patient who was looking for music, rock and roll trivia. Well, there's six different places it can be. There's, it could be just in the Beatles. There's a separate section just for the Beatles. There's one for rock trivia. There's one for trivia. There's one for rock music. So the idea that one call number is going to be the one be-all, end-all is not necessarily true. And so, again, we're talking about square peg, round hole with regard to cataloging and, and, mm -hmm. and ILSs and all that stuff. Wouldn't it be a great idea to have a device that you walk around with? Because how many times, I don't know if, if you've experienced this, where you're walking back from me after helping a patient and somebody else grabs you and you say, well, mm -hmm. come back to the desk right. so I can look it up yes. for you. Right. As opposed yes. to, I take my phone out. And say, okay, well, well, come with me. And you do the reference interview while you're walking, and hopefully you don't trip over something. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that we have the technology. We can rebuild the library. You know, and to have a, a building with a desk the size of the Millennium Falcon <laughs> doesn't necessarily fit a, the, the new yes. model anymore. And you guys are high-fiving, so yeah. now you have to share. No, we're, we're stealing we're your idea. No. No. I'll, I'll steal your comment. <laughs> there, there we go. Now, we've been talking about doing roving reference, which is by now a very dated term. We're calling it pop-up. We're calling it a pop-up library. We're having this really heated, intense conversation debate on yeah. email among some of the new library faculty, new librarians, and some of the veterans who are very wedded to the desk. And I have to say, you know, I want to honor the past. I want to honor the traditions and the culture of the past, but we trying to move the ship forward. It's like Hamilton musical. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm really encouraged by the strenuous debate and thinking about these issues. Um, you know, academia is a funny world, and you know, these kinds of conversations happen everywhere, but we're right in the middle of it. We're going to have do a pop-up. Do you have a committee on pop-ups? You have to form a committee <laughs> first. Well, it's, it's just forming in, right. right now, but we're going to have a pop-up station that's going to be apart from the access services desk, apart from references, just something that's just low tech. Yeah, very low. You want to talk a computer, a table. We have that fancy uh, tablecloth. Yeah, fancy <laughs> tablecloth. And two chairs. Yeah, and that was something that I was inspired by uh, oh. when I saw it at North Carolina State University. I mean, there was a, uh, 
blog entry about what they did at a pop-up station in their very traditional older library at, in, in Raleigh. But it was a way to really connect with students at point of need and where the students can ask the librarians, what are you about? You know, uh, they had a whiteboard too. They had a whiteboard. Which I feel you can use almost for assessment if you ask them. To yeah, whiteboards are great for getting yeah. questions or yeah, quick surveys yeah. or polls. Or oh, we were also talking about candy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Usually it's around corner too. Yeah. You're not going to get rid of your reference. No. This period, though. This, oh. is, this in, is a way to assess, to assess where the students are more responsive. And are yeah. you going to try to get away from the desk? I mean, keep the desk, but go with your patrons into the stacks I'd love to rather see than that. pointing. Or, yes. you know, I find that um, in today's world, there's no service. It's self-serve. Everything is self-serve. Yeah. And I find that sometimes they come to the library to be served. Yeah. They don't want somebody to point or go up and how many patrons go up to the stacks or go up in our case a right. mezzanine and they get lost. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, we have to entice them. We need to give our public something to come into for the library, but also that one-on-one -on -one, talking to someone mm -hmm. else. You know, not just looking it up in a catalog and going up and having that conversation. And it's very hard because a lot of, uh, sorry, I'm a former children's librarian, um, reference librarians are hey. vetted to the desk. No, because, well, I don't want to get into the discussion, but there are reasons why. Right. Yeah. I know, because you've got your computer there and all, too. Telephone, the other patrons. Yes, of course. Right. You, of course. And if you're alone. But yeah, and if you're alone, and then you disappear. But we're not talking about destroying, getting rid of the reference. No, desk I'm not either. Because roving yeah, doesn't work either. No, no. Just being we on tried roving how many yeah. years ago with work. my predecessor, yeah, and it really. didn't work. How many times have you, you been forward? in a store, like, we and you're just browsing, forward. and somebody forward. comes up to you and goes, "Oh, can Perfect. I help you with something?" Is it not the most annoying thing in the world? Absolutely. So if we're going to do that in a library. That's pushing people away. Are you finding what you need? You never ask. Yeah, because way, then they feel inept that they can't find what they want. Either way, you're intruding yeah. upon them. You know, right. the, the better strategy, if you're going to embrace that model or some version of that model, is say, hey, how are you? How you doing? And if there's no engagement after that, because if the person is looking for something, you mm -hmm. can't find something. You say, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Yeah. I can't find something. Right. Or they say, oh, hi, how are you? And that's it. Mm -hmm. And now you've made a, a connection without right. engaging without engaging. And then you allow the patron to take that, to bridge that, that communication gap to say they need help. If they don't need help, they're going to say hi back. Cookies. Oh, <laughs> cookies. Oh, God. And if I could add one thing here, we're, sure. we're going to be deploying at our university peer tutors. This is a, a university-wide measure to encourage students to get the help they need through their peers. And I think a lot of our students, well, I think students probably everywhere, will go to their classmates, their colleagues, to get the information that we would expect them to get from their professor or from their librarian. And so we're hoping that this peer tutoring uh, will really interface with what we provide as librarians. And we'll see how that works as a way for them to connecting to us one-to-one, -one, uh, rather than doing the roving reference as you talked about and just going up to them randomly and interrupting yeah. them. So it's great to hear these stories. Most yeah. of your community, is it, um, are they housed there or no. are they commuters? commuters. So commuters. that's going to be an issue. I was a commuter to Stony Brook University. And what happens is some of us work 
and the time frame as you kind of arrange your classes, like I used to do classes Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It was like great. I was commuting from Babylon Village, and it was a hike, and I found that. So that may be one of your stumbling blocks in getting those commuter students to, yeah, unless they're required yeah. to help tutor or mentor other students. Right. You may the peer-to-peer might be a great solution to yeah. that, actually. We're gonna, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, we're going to see. That's great. Email us. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. let's go around the table again and give all our contact info so we can okay. wrap up this segment and go get our cookies. Yeah, we want cookies. We want cookies. <laughs> Is there a Viennese hours? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> they're serving the oh, cake no. now. And they're good. They're good cookies. Okay, go ahead. Ellen okay. Drew to $5. Okay, Ellen Drew to $5. Um, E-D-R-U-D-A at hhhlibrary.org or E-D-R-U-D-A at gmail.com. Brian Lim, B-L-Y-M at adelphi.edu. That's spelled A-D-E-L-P-H-I. Sally Stieglitz, email S-S-T-I-E-G-L-I-T-Z at adelphi.edu. Charlene Muir, so it's C-M-U-H-R at hhhlibrary.org or Charlene Muir at gmail.com. Uh, Chris Kretz, so it's Chris.Kretz, K-R-E-T-Z, at stonybrook.edu, and on Twitter, at C.B. Kretz. Don't forget about the podcast. Oh, and podcast is longislandhistoryproject.org with my co-host, Connie Curry. In the stacks.com. In the stacks.wordpress.com. In the stacks podcast.wordpress.com. And I, just a quick plug, your podcasts are quick. They're Five hit and minutes. runs. They're awesome. They're six to ten minutes, right? Less. Less yes. than that. Five to eight. Yeah, I got. <laughs> and they're they're great quick listens. They're awesome, and I I will endorse. They're the opposite that of library movie. pros. The opposite <laughs> of library pros that go very, on and on and on. They're very rigid. In there, I said, Ellen, I don't think I can go in there. They're really serious. Serious. And I just want to say, because as part of the committee, I think I roped you into this. So thank you, Chris and Bob, for holding up in this room all day. Thank you for being here. You helped us out a lot. Yes, this is a lot of fun. Thank you. Okay, so we'll be back in a moment, hopefully with some more guests. Hi, we're back. Yes, we are. Yeah. And this is Bob Johnson and Christy Christofaro. Yes. You spelled your name wrong, too, on your tag. Yeah, right? I know. They spelled my name wrong. That's okay. It happens so, all the time. Now we have Art Friedman with us from uh, Nassau Community College, right? And we have yes, Eric, good afternoon. Eric Cohen's here. Right. From yes. John Germain. John Germain yeah. Library. Remember, past guest. So. Yes, another past guest. Art, take us off and, and just introduce yourself and tell us uh, where you're from and what you do. Okay. I'm Art Friedman. I am a reference librarian at Nassau Community College. I've been there now. This is the end of my... 40th year at the institution and probably with respect to this podcast the most important thing is I have been part of the conference committee Lowers conference committee on libraries in the future going back to its origins 27 years ago so probably no one knows more about the history of this conference than I do that's why you're here (laughs) (laughs) well the conference started at a retreat that the board of trustees of Lower held at Dowling College back in 1992. And at that retreat, one of the things we were talking about is the fact that uh, Lyric's milieu is really, was not being shown very much. 
It was as if you had this great piece of work that was being covered up by a bushel basket. And uh, the president of the Board of Trustees at that time was Albert Doner, who was the provost at Dowling College. And he suggested that we hold this conference on libraries and the future, and that Dowling College was going to be the first site for it. Well, we thought there was a one-time event. At the first conference, he got up to welcome the guests to Dowling College and welcome to, to the first annual Lillard Conference on Libraries in the Future. And there had to be a second and there had to be a third, right? Oh, yeah. So the, from that one, the second, and then we went to a third and fourth and so forth until now, we've had 26 conferences and we think they've been very successful. Goal has always been to be talking about themes that are not really in people's minds at the time. Mm -hmm. So, what would libraries be doing later on? Uh, our first speaker, the first year that the conference was held, was um, David Pierce Snyder. David Pierce Snyder was a well-known futurist, and the important piece that many people got out of that conference because he was saying. You know, in looking at the future, what you have to do is look at the present and be doing eclectic reading, reading what's going on in the environment. What we do we talk about in strategic planning, you know, doing environmental scans. Well, look at the world around you and what's taking place. And one of the major pieces that came out of his discussion was the idea that you need to be training, training, training. There's always the need for continual training. And that has become the uh, mantra of the Long Island Library Resources Council. Uh, anybody looking at say, its history, especially under the leadership of Herb Bibolo, will see that the number of continuing education programs mm -hmm. that the council sponsors has been growing over time. So it publishes a book every six months about what's coming up next. And the idea is for training. I went to a few of those conferences at the, when they were at Dowling, and mm -hmm. some of the speakers were great. Well, Herb used to describe that as his Dowling, uh, Dowling Conference. We <laughs> talk about future. It was the Dowling Conference. If you take a look in the brochure that we put out for this conference, you'll see a bookmark for it, which shows the titles of the 26 different conferences. I saw that. I thought that was incredible. That was a great idea. Well, one of the things that I uh, try to emphasize, if you'll notice, one of the first conferences that we held was on virtual reality. 1993. Right. That was yeah. the second year. And if you think about it, virtual reality was this really strange thing back then where people had tremendous helmets they had to wear and they had to wear all kinds of gizmos in yeah. order to engage in that. And now virtual reality is something you do with a smartphone and a special yeah. pair of goggles. Cardboard goggles. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's right. It's involved in that way. And we, as we said, we've tried to be cutting edge. Some people might say bleeding edge. Uh, some people complain, well, it's not something that they can take right back to their library and put into place immediately. But it's always a theme that we think is going to be there in the future. And you've been spot on. I mean, look for the one from 1996, Content in Context. Mm -hmm. And then 98, Controlling Cyberspace. Mm -hmm. And that was like, that, you know, now you think about it and you're like, wow. <laughs> uh, we had some things on ebooks, and we invited students from a design, uh, I think we're from, I'm trying to think it was Pratt and a couple of other engineering schools 
to come up with some designs that show us what their designs would be for ebooks way back before, before no, 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 like 2000. The other ones were very important. Yeah. Uh, we've had people from University of Rochester when they did a major study about what students wanted in little spaces, which is really the start of a lot of the commons work and the huddle technologies. People from MIT one year when I was there. Yes, yeah, so we have from the Media Lab right here. Right. So um, it's, an, it's an interesting technique. Uh, it's been a very interesting committee to serve on. Not everybody can serve all the time. People have gone off the committee because retirements, building programs, other kinds of things. But we try to have a mix. If you take a look at the conference, uh, the committee members, academic, public libraries are part of that mix. We've even had vendors part of it. We've tried to meet people's needs. I've been coming to the conferences for about 15 years, I think, and it's all I remember is Herb, Art, and Min. <laughs> Three people, the staples of the conference. You know? That's right, always so. there. Well, last year I did a little retrospective as a starting point for the Friday event of some of these themes that we talked about. So it's about a 15-minute piece that I did. The committee and other committees that have on look at me as they call me article art. That's right. <laughs> I've gotten that nickname because I'm always coming with articles about different right. topics to the meetings and saying, well, that's, how about this thing yeah. or something else. It's good that you're here to be forward looking for the committee. Yeah, it shows. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I never know what I'm going to come up with. Yeah. <laughs> but we've always come up with something. Yeah. This one was starting on the idea of the consumer experience. And unfortunately, one of the speakers who we were looking for got sick, so we had to do some changes. But we've been fortunate. We've had good speakers all the time. They were great. Yeah, today's yeah. speakers were really good. Yeah. We've had some interesting times. One of our speakers many years ago was an individual by the name of Saeed Vadhaidanathan. Um, and just to show you how new technology's got into the piece, he was coming to us that morning from his home in, I believe it was Western Virginia. Hmm. He was supposed to be flying on US Air. One of the committee members who was watching him and was watching him on Twitter was Debbie Engelhardt. And she saw this tweet come out from him which said, um, I'm on this US Air flight, but there are only three people on the flight, <laughs> and they're canceling the flight. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So here we had planned them as our morning, one of our morning speakers, and uh-oh, we have a problem. Well, the, the uh, smartphones came out, and Twitter came out, and we were able to, was able to get here in time to be their afternoon speaker, and he was fantastic. He knocked it out of the box that afternoon. But this is the, made the committee kind of interesting from the standpoint, we've always been ready to move in different directions. Yeah. On a moment's notice, you have flexible. to be right. You yeah. got to be flexible. Yeah. yeah. So I guess, Art, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, Herb's history, because I think this is his uh, last year. Is he retiring? Is that right? Herb is retiring. He's been here 35 years. Yeah. Uh, he has a very quiet and forceful style. Uh, as I indicated last night to the group, we gave we had a surprise retirement activity for him last night because he is refusing to allow us to hold a major retirement party. <laughs> so I brought in a cake guest last night. He didn't know it was coming. Wow. And we did this. And as I said in my remarks, 
He has been a leader, a manager, a friend, and a mentor to many of us in this community. As a leader, he has been there with the Long Island Library Resources Council, with the things he does with the three R's around New York State, uh, with working with legislators and other things, and pushing ideas in a very quiet way. Uh, there's a piece in terms of leadership and organization that talks about a leader knows the right things to do, which is one of the ways of describing her. A manager knows how to do things right. And we have done lots of different things. In fact, even this committee, he sits there and he has his ways of getting us to make sure we've had good sponsorships. We've never had to worry about the uh, income for it. It's there, it's taken care of, that the conference is going. He keeps us on track. Well, we better be getting speakers involved. <laughs> it's starting to get late, things like that. He does that. He's been a friend to many of us. Uh, you can't ask for a uh, better person from that. And for those of us who watch and work with him, he has not had many years of experience before he came to Long Island, he's been a mentor. So hopefully people have picked up ideas that they can put into place and do good work from that. Uh, think about the fact that Herb was treasurer of the American Library Association. He has an international reputation with the International Federation of Library Associations. Uh, he's been married to Nyla, in fact, we hold a reception at Nyla that's become one of the highlights yeah. of the Nyla conference. Yeah. That was part of his idea of getting Long Islanders together up there because well, we're a big group. Mm -hmm. We go to Nyla and we're a big It's a Long so, Island. What? It's, it's a, a Long Island. island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so all the way from my side, which is Brooklyn, to Montauk PM, we're all out there. Uh, so many of us are going to miss him. I mean, I've served on, with him on a lot of different activities. Uh, my history, as I mentioned, goes back with him to when I was uh, co-chairing the Long Island Coalition, uh, 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 Media Coalition, which was a way of we were able to share film resources mm -hmm. back when it wasn't really done with the colleges. We had, all had ma major film collections, and rather than just sitting collecting dust, we found a way of making them available. Uh, we were able to set up a statewide consortium for licensing off-air taping when that was first came about. I don't know if you guys remember Carl Sagan's program, Cosmos. Oh yeah, sure. But everyone wanted copies of that. And it was a time when VCRs were very prevalent and people were downloading them. But you couldn't have a legal copy. Right. Okay, unless you purchased it or did something else. Well, I said, well, we can get it down. Why don't we have a way of licensing it? Uh, some people around the state said, well, so the state university could handle this mm -hmm. as licensing it. They never could get their act off the ground. Lil Rick under Herb was able to set up the licensing agreement that we were able to license not just for people on Long Island, but we actually licensed it for other libraries around the state. That's great. Wow. Made yeah. that available. Way Talk back. about groundbreaking, yeah. We did it back then. Uh, the ideas of sharing um, databases, he set some things up here for it. There was some stuff from the state, but there was other things that we needed. He took care of it before some other people usurped that element and ran it in other ways. 
but he's always been there saying, what can Lorick do to facilitate right. what needs to be done? Yeah. Uh, and then I served with him on the uh, Long Island Council of Academic Library Directors. Another major piece that many of us have been, that's a bi-county and multi-type library activity is our legislative committee. And even there, years ago, we, as a group, were saying, well, just going into the legislators' offices in Albany wasn't enough. You have some, have some other ways of getting them to remember who we are. So we set up a reception up in Albany after the event, after the day of traveling and being up there. And then we said, you know, this isn't working, so let's see something else that we can set up. So we set up the Long Island Breakfast, the Legislative Breakfast, yeah. which are now taking place in both counties. And I was working with Lil Rick, helping to organize those activities. <clears throat> and they've been replicated by many of our colleagues around the state. They said, hey, this works great. Right. We should be doing something. Now they come to you. The legislators come to you now. They come yeah. to us. And they will know us. They know us. We were up there for, you know, for 39 years. I've been going up to Albany. Mm -hmm. So I know a lot of those characters up there. And yeah. I'm not afraid to say something. Though. No, and that's what we need. You know, that's exactly the representation right. that we need and that we've expected from Herb and yourself as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember we were there on a snowy day one year. And at the time, my representative was Alan Hevesy. I don't know if that name is familiar to you, but he became the state controller and eventually oh, went to jail. Yeah. <laughs> eventually went to jail. Eric knows yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, we, we shared a cell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, he, but he was my representative up there one year, and I was met him in the halls. You know, we talked about lobbying. Yeah. I was actually in the in lobby. The lobby. Yeah. I met him. And I said to him about the fact that we're wasting our time being up here because it was a year that they were cutting budgets. And he said, those groups that are up there will be taken care of. And what took place is they gave us the increase that we were expecting under legislation from previous years and then took the decrease afterwards. Wow. So we didn't lose as badly as we would have lost if they took the other way. So I tell that story to people, say, you need to talk you need to, to keep, And you need to keep going up there, getting on the bus and taking the ride and, and making the representation. That's okay. right. Yeah. Chuck Levine in Nassau yeah. County. I've met him in the hallways there. He says, Arthur, oh, come on, let's go talk in my office. Yeah. And he knows I'm going to be straight with them. He can say all about how, oh, we have budget crisis. I say, right. don't give me that. Right. I'm, I'm <laughs> the same man, you take care of what you take care of. You that's, know, that's right. Yeah. I mean, we know that libraries get funded on a, right. like, the dribs and the drabs on right. it. Yeah. A minus, minuscule amount compared to everything else that's out there. Yeah, but you have to, you get to know these people. So those trips, yeah. the fact that Herb was part of it and, and helping to organize what was taking place is very important. Uh, I tell a story as well that I was a, net, a gadfly for Nyla for many years um, in terms of the membership meetings about having a resolution about membership. And frequently they were about trying to keep dues low to encourage membership. And what would take place is I would get up and move my resolution, and Herb would be right behind me to second it. Right. Okay, so he was right there. And then even though I got shot down by different things, right. we kept doing it. And eventually I had some resolutions passed. On some of them, they eventually said, well, we want to stop him from making resolutions. <laughs> so they made me president of my life. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> But, but Herb's always been there to be somebody to talk to, to be to yeah. work with. Uh, and you know, he has a wonderful wife as well, who mm -hmm. has been a librarian all these years. Yeah. Uh, Mary DeBlow is, I think, the longest serving member of ALA Council. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. 
She served more of the years than anybody else. Uh, and it's really a major fixture. Mm -hmm. So between the two of them, we have a terrific library team. Yeah. So bring us into the future, I guess. What would you say is, is next for the, not only for the conference, but maybe for Little Rick in general? And well, we have a search out for a new executive director. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an open search. It's been posted. We hope we have good candidates. Uh, as a member of the Board of Trustees of LORIC, I will be on that search committee. I've been on the preliminary committee for it, about its, uh, the job description and things like that. So it's out there, and we hope we get somebody of Herb's caliber to be able to move LORIC for the next 35 years. It's great to have him. Yeah. <laughs> great to have Herb all those years. Yeah, it was fantastic. Going to be big shoes yeah. to fill. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Well, there's a th I hope at the next board meeting, we have a board will meet next in uh, December. And I don't really know if we'll be able to do it at that meeting or the following meeting, but I expect to put through a motion that he be named Director Emeritus for the cool. That's great. Nice That's, idea. Yeah. That's fitting for such a you know, staple, staple in, the, uh, mm -hmm. in the conference and, and, and in Little Rick in general. My God, the work that he's done for all of us, you know. It's grown. We've had some interesting things. I mean, it's a, one of the things you look at in Lowrick is the fact that it's really a multi-type library system because our membership includes lots of public libraries, yeah. all the academic institutions, a lot of specials, uh, and even some school. So we're right there. That's great. Cool. Yeah. What do you think? That's great. Thanks so much for coming in and telling us about everything you know regarding Millwork and what you do and what, what Herb's done all these years. It's, mm -hmm. oh, my pleasure. It's great. And another great conference, 2017. Another great conference. Yeah. Excellent. Terrific. Congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks again for being here. Appreciate okay. It. All right.